Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Welcome you to NASCAR on Fox and the 62nd running of the Great American Race, along with Jeff Gordon, Jamie McMurray, I'm Chris Myers, and nice to have you along with us for this special moment. I have been to a lot of Daytona 500s, Chris. Never have I felt the excitement and energy. We've had great racing on the track, but we've got the president landing right now. The fans are pumped up. I mean... Wow, what a day. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen to, to see. They said that plane's 800 feet above the racetrack right now. What an entrance by the President of the United States. He's the Grand Marshal. He'll give the command. Presidents, of course, have attended NASCAR races Daytona before, but again, the first to give the command for this, the Daytona 500. And there is President Donald Trump, his car, entering the Daytona International Speedway. We're hearing he's going to take a few laps before giving the command. You're watching NASCAR on Fox. Well, Chip, thank you very much, and... My fellow race fans, there is no greater thrill than to join you at the World Center of Racing for the 62nd Daytona 500. So exciting. The Daytona 500 is a legendary display of roaring engines. Soaring spirits of the American skills, speed, and power that we've been hearing about for so many years. The tens of thousands of patriots here today have come for the fast cars and the world-class motorsports. But NASCAR fans never forget that no matter who wins the race, what matters most is God, family, and country. Joining us today are Gold Star families whose loved ones made the supreme sacrifice to defend our freedom and our flag. To Edgar and Jennifer Bill, George Lutz, and Gold Star families everywhere throughout our land, your fallen warriors will live in our hearts forever. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're also grateful to be joined by Staff Sergeant David Bellavia, who I was privileged last year to award the Congressional Medal of Honor. A very brave man. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. 
Thank you. This afternoon, we congratulate all of the new enlistees in the United States Armed Forces, and there are plenty, and they love our country. And welcome back to Flavor Politics Podcast. It's the 19th of February, year of our Lord, 2020, and that was the intro to our hate section. Oh, God, they got pissed that he went there. But we have some proof that Obama took the beast places. Obama did all sorts of... He fucking did an interview between two hedges. Really? Yeah. So, short podcast today. I want to try to keep these down. Three hours and a half, five hours is too much. Um, so we're going to do some hits today. This is some with a few other Antifa attacks, things like that. A little hit on the media, dams, and news and social media nuggets. So let's just go straight into our violent left and the long cut of... The president going to the Indianapolis, or the, excuse me, the Daytona 500, and God liberals had a lot to say. So did journalists. Equal morally. But this is truly an historic first. A sitting United States president pacing the field for the great American race. He said he wanted to do a lot. He's going to do it. Well, he is the president. <laughs> he has that right. And I just can't imagine, as a driver, as a competitor, the magnitude of this. This only builds up what is the great American race and one of the biggest races in the world to make put that much pressure on you to win this race today. I'm not sure how this idea came about, but I had an inkling. A phone call was received the other day in Franklin, Tennessee, at the home of our former colleague, Daryl Walter, who retired from broadcasting at the end of the 2019 season, asking him to fly to Palm Beach this morning and join President Trump on Air Force One on the ride up here to Daytona. So I would not be surprised if Daryl had a little hand in what we're about to see. He's giving some tips down there about those high banks here at Daytona. And are the drivers excited about this? Well, here's Clint Boyer's radio. What do you think to do? Yes. You know, Mike, people ask me, do you miss him? You know, are you jealous of those competitors out there? Today, right now, I am. I would love to be in this Daytona 500 field out there competing today. This is just so special. Now, we know that at least 70 miles an hour is required to uh, keep those cars up on the banking. Those presidential limousines, which are built on truck chassis, weigh about 22,000 pounds, will probably not be doing 70 for the 31-degree banking of turns one and two. But uh, we'll stay down on the apron. Well, you think when he finishes this lap, is he going to do a burnout? What kind of horsepower is underneath the hood of that car? Well, Jeff, our Fox Graphic Department came up with a comparison between the NASCAR Cup cars and what Secret Service calls the Beast, the presidential limousine, uh, built by Cadillac on a truck chassis with Cadillac sheet metal. It's two feet longer than the Cup car, and it's a little heavier at 22,000 pounds. 
horsepower and top speed is sufficient, uh, but unknown. It's been estimated that those side windows are five inches thick of bulletproof glass and that the sheet metal is some eight inches thick as it's fully armored. And, of course, seating capacity seven for the limo and one for our cup cars. The only thing I wish they'd have modified on that limo is put a spoiler on that rear deck lid. Just for NASCAR. Well, it does have a couple of antennas for communication, after all. Uh, not sure what those flags on the front fender are going to do for aerodynamics. <laughs> Nor do we care. Donald Trump is the fourth sitting United States president to attend a race here. Ronald Reagan gave the command to start from Air Force One and was here when Richard Petty drove to his 200th victory over Cale Yarbrough in a Firecracker 400. George H.W. Bush, the summer of 92, and George W. Bush, the 20, 2004 Daytona 500. Uh, Bill Clinton campaigned at Darlington in a NASCAR race, but the president with the closest ties to the sport was Jimmy Carter. One of Jimmy's closest friends in Georgia when he was governor was Alf Knight, the longtime superintendent of Atlanta Motor Speedway. Uh, Jimmy would come down and be a visitor to the track often and was honorary starter for the race there when he was governor. Someone on Twitter uh, took a picture of the presidential limousine and emblazoned a NASCAR style number 45 on the door, but that idea was rejected in favor of the presidential seat. <laughs> well, we know these race fans, they've been ready all week. They're super excited, waving flags of their favorite driver, but i got to imagine there's a lot of American flags waving out in the right now as we get ready to take the green flag over. And if you're a fan of professional cars, limousines, and the like, there is a great exhibit of presidential limousines of the past at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. And a big roar from the crowd as they come past. The green and American flags are waving from the flag stand. Now, folks, let's get something straight. NASCAR isn't just a southern thing. There's people all over the country that like NASCAR. Yours truly used to watch NASCAR back at Dale Earnhardt. I got turned on to it in the 90s with a roommate who was just a NASCAR guy. And at that time, you know, I thought he was a redneck. And I was still young and thought, what a stupid sport. Then I started watching it and went, holy shit, that's really good. It was exciting. But when Earnhardt died, something inside me died for the, my love of NASCAR. I just wasn't into it anymore, and I watch occasionally. But, I mean, this this is the usual thing. Most of what you read online is redneck. Well, now he's definitely working for the racist vote. And just all this stupid shit. But I parsed it down to small stuff. Benny reached out to multiple sources of knowledge of Trump's plan on the Daytona 500. Trump will act as Grand Marshal. Trump will give the iconic gentleman start union. President will take a track lap in the beast. Emily Singer, political 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 reporter at the Progressive American Independent, 
Didn't think the Daytona 500 could have gotten any trashier. Emily C. Singer, you thought an event couldn't get any trashier. And then, John Roberts, scoop. Multiple sources tell Fox News that real Donald Trump is planning to take a lap at this updates Daytona International Speedway and the Beast presidential limo, limo ahead of the Daytona 500. It's 100%. Stephen Miller, that's the spirit, because she retweeted that. Kim G, has she not seen the Oscars? It's almost as if these people don't want to beat Trump. It's still apparently 2016. Why learn anything for 2016? Keep talking, and y'all can't manage to figure out why you can't win an election. Extraordinary. Another reply, and then from now on, just different replies. I don't have to say another reply. When did the 500 get trashy? It's an iconic American event. I'm not an NASCAR fan, but for this, I am going to watch and vote for Trump quite enthusiastically after your tweet. Thank you. Um, thank you for proving that the media hates more than half the country, looks down on them, and has no problem lying to the people they hate. Your exact your reaction exactly why Trump does stuff like this. Hey, your smug elitist is showing. Might want to cover it up. Promised progressive outreach to guys in pickup trucks after the 2016 election and lasted 36.75 seconds. Congratulations. You just demonstrated why average people dislike journalists and will vote in droves for Trump. A, NAS, a reporter dripping with disdain for common man. How novel. NASCAR is trashy. But I'm an elitist who thinks Trump voters are deplorables. Another one. Wherein the reporter from New Jersey looks down her nose at NASCAR. But then they took the other track, the political journalism, objective political journalism, using the official apparatus of government for what appears to be a political event. And that was Maggie Haberman to an article. Trump derangement syndrome at its finest, folks. Imagine Democrats will want to impeach Trump over this, too. I'm sorry, but this is just an absurd characterization of what's actually happening here. And describing in this way betrays a real bias. bias. Barack Obama had done it. The mainstream media would have gone nuts. But it was President Trump who took a lap at Daytona International Speedway. So, of course, it was the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world. Trump flew into Daytona on Sunday, swimming over the crowd at just 800 feet in Air Force One, and served as Grand Marshal for the big NASCAR race. And in a fantastic first, Trump took his presidential limo down as the beast, known as the beast, out on a 2.5-mile track to serve as a pace car for the full field of 40 racers. But one New York Times reporter, clearly suffering from TDS, found the, found the whole thing objectable, and that was Haberman, linking to another post from an NBC reporter. Other Twitters quickly pointed out the absurdity of Haberman's claim. I'm sorry, but this is just an absurd characterization of what's actually happening here. And describing this way betrays a real bias, wrote Mark Hemingway, <clears throat> uh, senior writer at Real Clear Investigations. To be blunt, get a life, Maggie. Obama went to March Madness game, and that was fine, which is true. Relax. I know the Daytona 500 is the opposite of what the Times re- represents readership-wise, but chill, wrote Curtis Hoke. What did you want him to ride in? An Uber, wrote another. Wait until you learn the president rides in that thing to literal campaign events, wrote another. Remember Obama interviewed by Jerry Seinfeld in it? Haberman eventually defended herself, saying that she would have made the same observation if it was Obama in the car. And no, she wouldn't have. No, she wouldn't have. 
Here, here's Seinfeld. Be, he interviewed the president. Are these washed? <laughs> Shave, then work out. That's how I do it. I don't really need a reason. That's just how I do it. If I slid open your underwear drawer, one brand, one color? My shoes are squeaking today, which I apologize. Is that embarrassing too? It is. I've got to try it out. Watch out, people. I mean, I had my original intent was to literally put down all the things he did between two hedges. I mean, there was nothing he went to. He went on a, a, a radio show with a guy named Pimp. It was fine. He's reaching out to a demographic. Well, this is a huge demo. But they don't like that it's an election year. He's been using college football. He's going to Daytona. No, that that's not right. Fox show the fly-by live. I've been at a lot of Daytona 500s, one commentator said. Never have I felt the excitement and energy. We've got a great race on track, but you got the president landing right now. The fans are pumped up. I mean, wow, what a day. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. They said that plane's 800 feet above the track right now. What an entrance by the President of the United States. Benny, Trump buzzing the entire Daytona 500 with Air Force One. If your heart doesn't skip a beat watching this, you're a communist. Trump with First Lady Melania side-by-side gave a short speech to Grand Marshal just before the race. When he was introduced, the crowd applauded loudly with some chants. Four more years. There was screaming. There was people. Yeah. It was all okay. All right. Scott Jennings sums it up. Today's POTUS appearance at Daytona 500, and he is a anti-Trumper, is no different than a president throwing out a first pitch at a baseball game or doing some other large-scale media-friendly event. You just don't like it because it's Trump. Stop whining. And there was thousands of references to baseball pitches. Him and his fucking mom jeans tossing out pitches. Nobody had a problem with any of that shit. It's double gross to them because it's NASCAR. A presumed elitist southern redneck sport. I know southern rednecks, let's put it in quotes, have fucking $100,000 goddamn campers. And they do all the races, folks. These people aren't poor. And I'm sorry if they're not from New York, but you, you know, they vote too. They get a vote. Sorry about that. Katie Hill. At a restaurant, Trump and the motorcade Daytona 500 comes on TV. I literally don't know whether to laugh or cry or scream or just sigh. All. We're going to go with all. Well, we don't know she's perfectly capable of doing three things at once, so doing four shouldn't be too much of a stretch. Jesse Kelly. If history is any indication, you're perfectly capable of doing three things at once. I think it's awesome as motorcade Daytona 500. It's his victory lap, see? Very patriotic, very relatable. Curtis Hoke, your contempt for millions of Americans is despicable. The Daytona 500 is a crowd you'll never understand. Amy, we cheered. The entire bar erupted with four more years. Another tweeter. Hi, I'm watching it in Australia. It looks totally iconic America to me. Chicks on the right. The amount of glee I give that Katie Hill is upset by this is probably unhealthy. 
but I don't care. Triggled, triggered liberals are hysterical. It's a huge article. Media accused Trump of politicizing Daytona. Something they don't even watch. So I don't know how it's getting politicized. Nobody watches it, right? He just rednecks who beat their wives and white beaters and drink fucking Pabst Blue Ribbon. Those motherfuckers watch this shit. AP Motorsport writer Dan Giltson and Jenna Fryer, when Trump arrived Sunday at the Daytona National Speedway to deliver the command for drivers to start their engine, the race grand marshal might as well be at the one of his campaign rallies. High above the banners flying for NASCAR stars like Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson, Trump flags wave atop row after row of flashy RVs. Left-wing The Guardian made sure its readers knew the NASCAR appeals mostly to old white Republicans. Media previously reported that former President Barack Obama was also just campaigning when he attended basketball and baseball games and was more popular with Democrats and blacks. What? They never reported that. No, they didn't. There was also New York Times' Maggie Haberman. We already covered that. News of Trump's public appearances, of course, incomplete without the mention of the I-word. The AP writers crossed that one off their list in the first paragraph. Stroll through Daytona infield and fans can grab a seat next to President Trump and get a sweet taste of impeachment. <laughs> yeah, that's what they said. Debbie Ringhaver is mixing cocktails for curious NASCAR fans who stop in their tracks at the sight of life-size mannequin of Trump chilling on a lawn chair, holding a book titled The Truth Behind Trump and wearing a real red Donald Trump 2020 baseball cap. Hundreds have stopped by our RV this week for a selfie or chat or a sip of the impeachment, a blend of peach vodka, champagne, and peach nectar. The subpoena colada also is on the blender, but Ringhaver concedes it's just a pina colada with a better name. The AP writer also knows that NASCAR has a complicated relationship with politics and social issues. Funny how media never mentioned that the NFL, which shelled out $90 million for social justice activism and denied a pro-life Super Bowl ad while featuring drag queens and raunchy halftime sleaze, doesn't have a major problem with social issues. No, they never report what everybody else says. AP also dinged Trump. The tailgating feast at one stop was fit for a president who served fast food at the White House to college football champions. Deep-fried honey buns and deep-fried Oreos were on the dessert menu, or maybe it was dinner, and cheap domestic beers, easily sipped in NASCAR koozies. Do you see the condescension? The elitism. A couple positive quotes slipped into the AP story, though. Race car driver Joey Logano, who has been honored at the White House, said it was amazing Trump was attending. The leader of our country is coming to Daytona 500. How cool is that? That kind of solidifies what our sport is. It's a huge event. We're a big sport. And to be able to have the president come here, it's something we all should be proud of. They just don't understand. This isn't on cable. NASCAR races are on every fucking weekend. It's a big sport. There's people that watch it all over the world. Whether you support them or not, it doesn't matter. It shows the unity in our sport and how big our sport really is. Gleason and Fryer wrote that Trump supporters at Daytona were comforted by the fact that their love for the president is a deep tie that binds. We're a different group of people, said Georgia native Scott Gregory, attending his fifth straight Daytona. When you walk around and talk to all these folks, we're all pretty much of the same mind and what we think of U.S. leadership or president. We're all pretty much in line as far as that thinking. I don't think it's true of other sporting events. Bloomberg's Joss Wingrove and Jennifer Jacobs also characterized the race as a Trump campaign event following impeachment. President Donald Trump has taken his 
Wisconsin campaign to the Daytona 500, seizing center stage of the popular race with the president's most iconic vehicles as he looks to lock down support from his base in the aftermath of the impeachment trial. Actual driver, Haley Deegan. Today's goal, get my helmet signed by Trump. She got it, Trump. Signed by Trump. So how bad and butthurt was the media? Well, social media, Twitter, censors Trump's Daytona 500 photo as sensitive material. Twitter defines sensitive content as something that might contain violence or nudity. So why did a photo of a NASCAR racer and the president get flagged by the platform? NASCAR star Haley Deegan posed for a picture with the president, first lady Melania Trump. I'm looking at the picture right now. It's in my script. At the Daytona 500 on February 16th, as she posted on Twitter, some of her followers noted that the photo was covered by Twitter's sensitive content filter. Memer and influencer Carpe Duncan. Um, tweeted a screenshot of Deegan's post as appeared on the feed. The following material maybe contains sensitive material, read the caption. Twitter policy about sensitive material does not make sense in the context of the photo. The company's policies on sensitive media state that the categories of the media must be as sensitive, including graphic violence, adult content, violent sexual content, gratuitous gore, or hateful imagery. If users on Twitter want the ability to log in and see what the company considers sensitive, they must go to their privacy safety settings and enable their accounts to display media that may contain sensitive content, which I did day one. Because if not, you're going to see most of the conservatives just not going to be on there. Other Twitter users noted that the image was filtered out for them as well. Duncan captioned his screenshot with the words, Twitter has marked this picture as sensitive because they hate America. In a statement made to MRC Tech Watch, Duncan said, many of my videos are marked sensitive within minutes of posting. I keep my Twitter account set to hide sensitive content so that I can see what they're hiding. Many people have no idea that their tweets are being hidden. This new tactic is the equivalent of making a user jump through hoops before they can retweet or like the content, while also scaring people about what it might be. Duncan also added that while this tweet gets marked as sensitive, hardcore core porn on Twitter does not. Twitter seems to be following along with the general liberal media attitude toward Trump's visit to the Daytona 500. Stroll through the Daytona infield and fans can grab a seat next to President Donald Trump and get a sweet taste of impeachment, wrote Associate Press when we just talked about it. Politico correspondent Tim Alberta tried to imagine how the right would have reacted if Obama did the similar. Not sweating Trump taking a lap at Daytona, presidents enjoy tons of discretion with this sort of blurred state political activity. I just wish Obama had rolled into the NBA in the beast. Maybe use as a prop in a dunk contest so he could see the right's reaction. And the world reminded him, he did. He rolled to all sorts of games in the beast. Nobody cared. It's a specious argument. Because that's his car. It doesn't matter what he does. He has to go in the motorcade. That's what he has to do. But it's doubly worse because it's Trump. And it's a non-liberal event. So their elitism just falls right out of their mouth. Oh, look at that. Bunch of goddamn sipping... Poor domestic beer. I mean, can you believe somebody would have wrote an article like this about Clinton after his impeachment? Would that be acceptable? No, they would never wrote in post-impeachment. He's doing this so he can look good. They just—it's just fucking unbelievable. Our media is just garbage.
so to other violent left shit. Been talking a lot lately in regarding this new New York law. Well, here's an article. Bail reform is lit. New York City transit recidivist recidivist brags he can be he can't be stopped after his latest arrest for turnstile jumping. He's up to 139 arrests, and he says he can't be stopped. Serial subway crook Charles Barry walked out of Manhattan Criminal Court early Saturday after his arraignment in his most recent arrest on Thursday afternoon. He knew that except for having to spend about 36 hours in police custody, there was no immediate consequence for his alleged crimes, which include charges he snatched cash from people trying to use Metro card machines. I'm famous. I take two or $300 a day of your money, cracker. You can't stop me. Barry yelled to a New York New Daily News reporter late Thursday night as the police let him out of New, New York City Police Department Transit District 1 headquarters. Bail reform is lit. It's the Democrats. The Democrats know me and the Republicans fear me. You can't touch me. I can't be stopped. When he was finally released after his hearing early Saturday, Barry was still enthusiastic about Albany's decision last year to eliminate bail for nonviolent crimes. It's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. They punk people out for bullshit crimes. He served six stints in, st- six stints in state prison and has been arrested six times. So you heard, fuck Republicans and Crocker, I'm going to take your money. And this guy, I'm, I don't know how it's not a violent crime to snatch people's money, but that's what they consider because beating a Jew is okay. That lady was a triple crime beating a Jew. That was okay. So, New York Times reporter, they frame it, wall of white faces racially tinged attack on bail reform. New York Times has been shilling for the left-wing soft, soft crime policy despite the undeniable street violence that has already resulted. Now they're accusing opponents of racism, the giveaway of desperate losing of an argument. The latest comes courtesy of Albany Bureau Chief Jesse McKinley. Bail reform backlash as Democrats at war. The text box, some urge judicial discretion while others accuse critics of fear-mongering. Guess which argument McKinney favors? Here's the answer. A serial bank robber struck again four hours after he was released from custody. A wall of white faces and police uniforms filing the state capitol steps in protest. What does white have to do with it? A protected witness bludgeoned to death. There are some of the images and incidents that have been used in what has become one of New York's most divisive political battles in years. A bitter, often racially tinged debate of the state's new bail and discovery laws. Since the changes went in effect, law enforcement officials across the state have drawn attention to crimes committed by people freed without bail. As usual, the paper blamed other outlets, the New York Post, for covering actual news of street crime. Those opponents have helped funnel a parade of negative stories to the press about crimes allegedly committed by those released under the law. The New York City tabloids have regularly featured cover stories of repeat of perpetrators, including several anti-Semitic incidents, which upstate communities have been rattled by. So this is a deadly accident that resulted in the death of a nine-year-old in which the driver was released with a desk appearance ticket. Other supporters have suggested that the opponents of the new law are racially motivated, noting that a Facebook page devoted to repealing the law has been peppered with anti-immigrant sentiment and offensive comments about lawmakers from minority groups. So if you just say anything about a person that's black, well, then, of course, you've got to be a racist. I mean, it can't be just a criticism. McKinley tends not to hand out valentines to police. He ignored violent assaults on cops during the Oak 
Occupy Oakland protests in 2011. In March 2009, story co-written by McKinley on Level Mixon, who shot and killed four Oakland police officers after a traffic stop, also expressed, expressed sympathy for the killie killer. McKinley's sympathy for convicted murders even showed up in his theater review from his December 2000 piece on which on some performances performance art in Berkeley reenacting the execution of Tukey Williams who murdered four people in 79. Tukey Williams was also a black man sent in the end to his death by a white man. Lots like a lot of black kids. He had it tough and in his youth he did heinous things. Social hardship is no excuse for murder, but there is no escaping the fact that justice is a racial issue in the United States. No, no, it's not, actually. You break the law. You break the law. What do you want them fucking to do? Then there was this there. Broadway showing of Jagged Little Pill evacuated after pepper spray incident. And it was huge all over Twitter, but they never said who did it or why it was done. And it just went away. So my assumption it was a black person, and they just didn't want to report on it because it's New York. Then we have another journalist. This is uh, Hayden Black. And this, this just sums up what's wrong with our media. Got into a lift with a mega driver for an hour-long ride and told him, I didn't want to talk as I was in shock because I just found out I'd shared an airplane with two people who had the coronavirus, sat there occasionally coughing in silence. And he thought it was the coolest thing. I was going to actually read the thread because the people who remarked on it, the things they said, too bad it wasn't true, you should have licked him. It Once again, it's why I do this segment. This is what's wrong with our country. It's not guys at NASCAR events causing problems. It's liberals. Christopher Matthias brings our next one, and this is constant. Given everything we know about Stephen Miller, seems a massive abdication of journalistic duty to publish a normalizing announcement of his wedding in New York Times vows and to publish said announcement with no mention that he's a white nationalist. Soledad O'Brien. Very New York Times to not mention the white nationalist part. That's what they want. But you got Antifa beating people up. You got people in New York beating up Jewish people. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that you, you're a racist if you cover that. But this guy who made a policy that actually worked is a white nationalist. Jay Caruso. So we're at, why won't the New York Times wedding session say that Stephen Miller's a white nationalist stage a media criticism? Then another one. It's a bullshit criticism. Should the same be said of Ilian Omar? Every mention of her should come with Representative Ilian Omar, who has a history of anti-Semitic statements. Is that fair? Because she does. But that's... that's We're an election year. I'm going to play two sound bites back-to-back. One is an actual fight at a political rally. Two is Don Lemon and everybody around Trump is a racist. 
New video shows a fight breaking out in the middle of Bernie Sanders' Denver rally on Sunday. Look at these two going at it. Sanders was giving his speech at the Colorado Convention Center when these two guys started fighting. They pushed through a metal barrier and ended up on the ground before bystanders tried to separate them. It's not clear what they were fighting about. Security did not kick them out, but they separated them instead. And Sanders apparently didn't skip a beat. He kept right on with his speech. A barbed wire going up because you know what? We're not letting these people invade our country. Susan, he's the president of the United States, and they are following his example. You know, Don, I think this was a really powerful story, and I, you know, I mean, we're not doing justice to it. You know, people should read it for themselves in the Post. Uh, in many ways, it seems to me that it is actually a powerful political document as well in this sort of cultural uh, divide that having a president who speaks like this, uh, you want to know why there's a gender gap that's unprecedented uh, in American society. My my view is like that as a mom, no mom could read this and not be horrified. You know, the other thing I think that's interesting to point out is that this, of course, is just sort of a, a tip of the iceberg type thing. You did a, essentially a database search uh, that showed these incidents. So these were the ones that were uh, bad enough or notable enough to be covered in local media. Uh, you know, culturally, we, we know that this is actually much more widespread. Think of uh, the enabling of bullying, the language uh, that might not even be some of the more overtly racist language. I spoke recently with an educator here in Washington who told me every single day it's something that he has to worry about with middle school boys, uh, and they're using uh, insults and language directly uh, uh, taken from the president in a way that, you know, the president himself is like merchandising T-shirts on his campaign website, calling senior officials in the U.S. government pencil neck, liar, crybaby. I mean, you know, we wouldn't tolerate this behavior, and we don't tolerate it in our children. Yeah. The Washington Post re, uh, uh, reviewed 28,000 news stories uh, of Trump-inspired harassment in schools and found that at least three-quarters of the attacks were directed at kids of minority ethnicity. There are also cases of, of backlash against students who support Trump. But this polarization now is in our schools, and the, right. but then the vast majority is coming from the racist, inflammatory language of this president and his supporters. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly what we saw in our review. And we know, uh, to Susan's point, it's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, really, that there are, uh, we found in excess of 300 cases that were publicly reported, but those were just the ones that were that bad. Uh, we know even from talking to the kids who we interviewed, we interviewed kids all over the country, and, uh, you know, they told us of dozens of other incidents that they knew about. I mean, these were, in some cases, daily events where kids would hear language that was directly taken from the president and uh, directed them because of the color of their skin. Yeah, maybe someone should um, show them the First Lady's initiative, Be Best. They're not being their best. Thank you very much. I appreciate both of you. An alarming warning from the Anti-Defamation League. White supremacist propaganda doubling from 2018 to 2019. Why hate is on the rise. Next. So last election cycle, people started fights with Trump people and they got blamed. People got egged by anti-Trumpers and Trump got blamed. Sanders has a whole fight and only local news covers it. And oh, don't forget, we had an Antifa attack again this week. Uh, this wasn't covered. I'm going to catch you when all the cameras aren't around and I'm going to f*** you up. Oh, you're tired. No, I am. No, you've got the wrong guy. No, no. You've got the very wrong guy. Exactly. Yeah.
Why are you so angry? I don't understand. I'm just here chatting with you. Why are you angry, man? Because here's the thing. You probably disagree with me, but I disagree with you. But why? Why? How do you know? You don't know one thing about me. I grew up in a public house. I grew up in a public housing project. I grew up in a public housing project. Wherever you grew up, you should go back there. I don't need that. I've got that experience under my belt. I'm doing other things now, and including helping people get better. I've lived here for 30 years. I'm not so sure how long you've lived here. Well, I'm here 30 years. No, I'm the guy. I'm there. Not going anywhere. I got my family. So you go. You can't, you can't keep moving four people out. I'm going to catch you when all the cameras are around, and I'm going to f*** you up. Oh, you're tired. No, I am. No, you've got the wrong guy. No, no. You've got the very wrong guy. They're fucking garbage. Just garbage. Then you got this one. And I put this in the violence because why is this okay? Molly Hemingway, Chris Murphy, and the and other Democratic senators held a secret meeting with Iran, Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif last week, a high-level source reports. For blah, 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 his office is not responding to repeated requests. Imagine if Republicans did this under Obama. From the Federalist, Chris Murphy of Connecticut and other Democratic senators in a secret meeting with Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Zadif, whatever the fuck, during the Munich Security Conference last week, according to sources briefed by the French delegation. Murphy's office did not respond to repeated requests for comment by press. Notice his office is not responding on the matter. Such a meeting would mean Murphy had done the type of secret coordination with foreign leaders to potentially undermine the U.S. government that he accused Trump officials of doing. In February 2017, Murphy demanded investigations of NASA security advisor Mike Flynn because he had a phone call with a counterpart in Russia. How is that okay? Do you know under every U.S. president they do this? Nancy Pelosi did this under Bush. But any time you even thought about it as a Republican, you're investigated. And to our big-time anti-Semite, this is her call this week. 11 million children in the U.S., a nation of tremendous wealth, face this kind of hunger I experienced in a refugee camp in Kenya. It's unacceptable that our students go hungry and into debt for not having lunch money. Children's futures depend on making school meals universal. That's her angle this week. Jim Hansen, you want to make those children, and as many others as possible, dependent on the government, we want to make them dependent on responsible parents. Yeah. So, there's our violence. There's one other thing I'm waiting on. Dershowitz, I have proof Obama ordered FBI investigation at request of Soros. That's all over conservative media until it's a little more covered, like maybe the Daily Wire. I'll get into it. So as we went through the whole Daytona 500 and everything, I want to make sure you understand everybody did the same thing. And it was all over the Internet, so I'm going to play it again as we go to a music break. And we're going to listen to Climax. Because I watched the best NCIS episode I ever watched last night. It was fucking fantastic. If you didn't watch it, it was just really, really good. You know, we watch it because we've always watched it. But come on, NCIS is kind of getting lame. Nobody even knows the rules anymore. It's just fucking confusing as shit. But it was really cute. And they had the song, this song playing. Because each each of the characters, they kind of stole from Jag, went back to the 60s or 70s and played roles. It was really cute. Um, so we're going to listen to that. Kind of got off track. But the whole world was showing the meltdown of 2016. Because it's never stopped. So the soundbite that was all over Twitter, I'm going to play on our way out. When you come back in, you're going to get the media supercut of Avanti. 
Because as we go on our media section, what how, what kind of a podcaster would I be if I didn't bash the shit out of the people that said he would make a great president? He is like the Holy Spirit, said Anna Navarro. We are going to make this decision now. The Fox News decision desk has called Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States, winning the most unreal, surreal election we have ever seen. The revolution has begun. It's over. She hasn't won Pennsylvania by now. She's not coming back. No, that's bullshit. I won't believe anything until I hear Rachel Maddow say it. She's the only one I trust. How is this happening? It's the politics of fear. It always works. What started off as unlikely, impossible, is now reality. He said he was always a winner. This did not come without controversy. Fuck you, world! Entrepreneur. You say! have now confirmed that Secretary Clinton has conceded to Donald Trump. Uh, this concession took place in a phone call. It is my high honor to introduce to you the president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Our own state of Michigan. She's losing by 10,000 votes. That's the size of this town. And who's at 40,000 votes and counting? Jill Stein. Is that true? Path to victory that was unlike anything we've ever seen. It did not come without controversy. It did not come without splitting this country in some of the most divisive language. It does come now at a time where his supporters say this is the evidence. I hope every one of those voters who decided it was a good time to cast a protest vote is happy when that psycho gets us all killed. Honey, don't get so worked up. Shut up, Marilyn. I told you to go vote, but you didn't listen. Now look what happened. Look at our friends on the couch and tell them that they might not be able to maintain their rights as a married couple because you were too busy today on Etsy to go vote! I don't want you to not be married anymore. Precious and few are the moments we two can share. Quiet and blue like the sky, I'm all over you. And if I can't find my way back home 
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare, Michael Avenatti. Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's out there saving the country. Don Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now. I owe Michael Avenatti an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say? I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think. Because people all like you. I'm the only person right here. Donald Trump fears more than Robert Miller. We think you guys are the tip of the spear that's going to take down Donald Trump. Michael Avenatti's a beast. Okay, that's true. And he, he's a beast. He's a beast. I hand it to her and I hand it to Michael Avenatti. But he has a great, bigger calling here. That being a lawyer is minimal compared to what he's doing. No one has talked tougher directly to Donald Trump on TV than Michael Avenatti. And Donald Trump is afraid to mention his name. That's fascinating. Donald Trump is terrified of Michael Avenatti. He gives Trump a run for his money more than anybody else, Michael Avenatti. An existential threat to the Trump presidency. The Democrats could learn something for you. You are messing with Trump a lot more than they are. He has no doubt created sheer panic and Donald Trump's very fragile mind. Michael Avenatti is laying down the law as guest co-host. And is he really thinking about running for president? Uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. You look at the field of Democrats right now and Avenatti's the one who stands out. If they decide they value a fighter most, yes. people would be foolish to underestimate Michael yeah. Avenatti. I have always said that they need a fighter. Look, I mean, we're going to continue to use the media. I think we've used it with great success. All of my sexual fantasies involve handcuffs. Oh, I love these people. Because now, after all of this... Oh, wait a minute. Let's play Anna Navarro again. I, I want to hear that one more time. Lately, to me, you're like the Holy Spirit. You are all places at all times, right? I mean, you. I, I do. I see you all over cable news. I see you. You know, there is a, a, a seat available if you want to be a co-host at the View. You might. You know, there's people here you can pitch. My God, their ability to jump in on anybody that hate Trump or could get Trump—it was—it's like Bolton right now. Those these fucking people hate Bolton. 
But oh my God, they love him. They love him now that he could add some in his book that could have impeached him. Jesus. So of course now they're downplaying. So here's a soundbite of uh, NBC News downplaying the uh, the actual indictments. And Seltzer, was I stupid? Yes. Yes, you were stupid. Michael Avenatti, the lawyer who represented porn actress Stormy Daniels in lawsuits against President Trump, was found guilty today of trying to extort tens of millions of dollars from Nike. Prosecutors said Avenatti wanted the money to keep silent about evidence he said he had involving misconduct by Nike employees in recruiting college basketball players. The attorney who once pressed an adult film star's lawsuits against President Trump has, was convicted today of trying to extort Nike. A federal jury in New York found Michael Avenatti threatened the sportswear giant's reputation unless it paid him $25 million. He could get 42 years in prison. Let me ask you real quick while I have you. Michael Avenatti is, yeah. is back in the news. You know, the swamp is not just about Trump figures. I feel like there are so many other figures that are part of the swamp. Avenatti has just been convicted on three counts for alleged extortion and other crimes. Uh, I've been getting some grief from Sean Hannity this weekend, speaking of, of Fox, right, from Hannity for once suggesting that I thought Avenatti could be a serious candidate for president. So give me a media critique. Was that, was that stupid on my part? What do you what do you make of how Avenatti was covered by CNN and MSNBC? Well, I think one of the weird and in many cases distressing things that Trump has done is basically to Trumpify his opposition as well. And you see this very often in the conspiratorial mindset that many of his detractors take online. Hmm. And I think that bore itself out um, in the phenomenon of Michael Avenatti as well. This was a guy who, in many ways, was very similar to Trump. Um, he really knew how to operate in the modern media environment. Right. And I think that's what really um, drew a lot of Trump's critics to him, was this idea that he could sort of beat Trump at his own game. The question that I think a lot of journalists now have to ask themselves, though, is whether, you know, by, by virtue of granting that, they were basically buying into, they were being played by that very strategy, his ability to sort of manipulate the media. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of folks did take him very seriously without looking at the extensive personal, financial, legal baggage that mm -hmm. was out there just waiting to be reported. As a matter of fact, our colleague Kate Bricolet at the Daily Beast did some amazing work on his, uh, on his finances. He threatened to sue her, among many other journalists. Um, and this was back when he was sort of getting this, uh, this uh, you know, uh, there was Wave a lot of, of adulation. He's getting so uh, many press. TV exactly, interviews, right? right? Yeah. And he was actually making news. I mean, the Stormy Daniels sure. case was significant news about the president. You deserve grief. You just deserve grief. I mean, all this is on the backdrop of McClatchley News filing bankruptcy. That is an old news agency. But people wonder why it's going under because people are sick of your shit. They're sick, they're sick of your half-truths. They're sick of your bias. They're sick that ne there's never anybody ever endorsing a Republican for any position. They're sick of you always pushing the opposite of what most Americans want. They want restrictions on abortion. They don't believe in federally funded abortion. They're not for 95 pronouns. They are not for free health care for everybody. Nobody's for this. You guys jigger your fucking goddamn polls to make it look like it, but it's not true. So... Dozens and dozens of times, and even touting him as possible presidential material, 
Um, the celebrity attorney being found guilty in the Nike extortion trials made CNN and other media outlets look like a total clown. But instead of expressing some regret, the Reliable Horses Sources newsletter blamed Fox. Ume Arosa. Here's how the Reliable Sources newsletter covered Avani's conviction. Fox predictably characterized Avani as a media darling. Other right-wing personalities zinging not only Avani, but the news organizations for giving him so much airtime. But Avanti conviction gave right-wing outlets a cause to celebrate. This is actually from it. Darcy sends one more. The right-wing media universe might have been reeling from the DOJ McCabe decision, but it soon started celebrating over another legal story, Michael Avani's conviction. The Avani story was a top story Friday afternoon on websites like Fox News, Breitbart, New Max, and others. Breitbart teased about how much time he might serve in their homepage headline. Fox particularly characterized Avani as a media darling. Other right-wing personalities did the same, zinging not only Avani, but news organizations for him, giving him so much airtime when the Stormy Daniels story was dominating headlines. Frank Luntz, a non-Trumper. CNN and MSNBC featured Avanti on their network a combined 108 times in the two-month span. We need an on-air mea culpa, but an email newsletter blaming it on Fox News. Perhaps CNN media reporters Seltzer and Darcy should interview their own bosses about why they continue to have Michael Avani on their network despite his behind-the-scene behavior. Why don't media reporters ever scrutinize their own network practices? This would be a, such a gotcha moment. For Seltzer, he'd cover it on his air if, if they did it. But when they cover each other, th- this is this is what they get. If it's not Fox, New York Times, four gag-inducing points about MPI, NPR, excuse me. New York Times ran a promotional piece on National Public Radio on Monday headlining NPR under attack by Trump is taking the threat seriously. Here are the four things. I'll just paraphrase. The glaring conflict of interest. The Times never mentioned in its own half-hour podcast, hosted by Michael Barabo, called The Daily. It's an, It airs on more than 150 NPR stations. Number two, the ridiculous NPR funding math. NPR advocates routinely and blatantly lie about NPR's percentage of federal funding. They expect no one to understand the shell game. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting sends out community service grants to NPR stations, and the stations send chunks of money back to NPR in D.C. for programming costs. But we get this. NPR is not taking the potential threat lightly. About 1% of its budget comes from federal money, but Michael Rickerson, the NPR vice president, said the funding was essential to public radio. So how could it be 1%? Three, the threat of cutting public radio TV funding never materializes, never happens. Four, the ludicrous idea that the NPR helps Republicans or is beloved by Republicans. As Joseph Vasquez has recently noted, liberal organizations are big financial supporters of NPR, and its CEOs often donates to Democrats. The wacky antidote came from Paul Haga, the longtime Republican donor who is the chairman of NPR's board of direction. Directors. He recalled conversations that he had with Republican lawmakers soon after he joined the board. They learned over and they leaned over and said, "Don't tell anybody in the caucus." But I loved NPR and couldn't live without it. And I'd lean over and say, "Don't tell anybody," but everybody in the caucus tells me that too. Everybody. As I tell my Republican friends, our ideas are better than the Democrat ideas, so we benefit disproportionately from an informed public. Sometimes people chuckle over that, but then they realize it's true. Yeah, you got a token Republican on the board. Republicans don't want Sesame Street having a guy in a dress. We just 
covered it. So that's how they cover each other. But the other reason why we actually went out of business is because of moments like this. This is Sam Donaldson. Sam Donaldson has spent years as a prominent White House correspondent and anchor for ABC News, never strayed from the ethic that journalists should not take sides and should at all costs avoid endorsing political candidates. Sam Donaldson has retired from the news business. And now he has publicly endorsed former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg for the Democratic presidential nomination. We wanted to talk to him about why he decided to do this. He joins us now. Sam, thanks so much for it. Good to have you back. Uh, your career obviously speaks for yourself. You've held candidates, uh, presidents on both both parties. Hold their, you've held their feet to the fire. Why endorse Bloomberg and why now? Well, because I think Mike Bloomberg is best suited to take on Donald J. Trump this November and beat him. And that's something I think is very important for the country. You're right. When I was a working reporter in Washington for 52 years, I never did anything like this. I never gave any money to candidates. I didn't even register for a political party. But... When they threw me out at age 80 six years ago, I was free to do this. And I think it's very important now. We are in the grip, Anderson, of a sick, ignorant man. He's mean. He's corrupt. And if we don't get this right, we may lose the things that have made this country the best place to live in the world. And that shining city on the hill that Ronald Reagan used to talk about, which was the envy of the world. So I'm in it. I'm Sam Donaldson. I was a reporter in Washington for 52 years. I've covered every political campaign for the presidency in this country, beginning with Barry Goldwater through George W. Bush. Donald J. Trump is a threat to the country. He doesn't understand our Constitution. He doesn't seem to care about a lot of people. Donald Trump doesn't understand the world. I've never seen any presidential campaign that I think was as important as this one is, because we never had the country in the hands of someone who I think is not qualified to be president. We want to say our president not only knows how to do it, but he's a great leader, a great role model for our children, and a great person that the rest of the world looks up to. Bloomberg can do it. I'm backing Mike Bloomberg. He understands people. He proved that as mayor of New York. And Bloomberg can beat Trump. For some of you, you're too young to remember, but this is a major evening news guy. Objective journalist. I just did air quotes. Sponsoring, endorsing a candidate. Brian Seltzer thought it was some sort of a bombshell that former ABC News White House correspondent Sam Donaldson endorsed Mike Bloomberg, seeing as Donaldson has spent 52 years' career striving for independence. Retired now, Donaldson was last free to speak his mind about politics. Now journalist Emily Miller, who used to work for Donaldson, says she's thrown off. Here's her tweet. Emily Miller. I am really thrown off by seeing Sam Donaldson, my former boss, doing a political ad. This hurts all working reporters who have tried to prove to the public they aren't all liberal and biased. The demonstrated lack of self-awareness regarding your peer group confirms that America think of your peer group and why they're held in justifiable low regard, ma'am. Too late. Most MSM have already probably irreparably destroyed their collective reputation. Who among you stood up to the truth, balance, accuracy, or even cop to your biases? You decided that POTUS must be removed at any cost. The cost was your integrity. David Riobi. I'm pretty curious what Donaldson's number was and what he's doing with the money. Some transparency, Mike Bloomberg, would make a killer reality show. 
This was Brian Seltzer's tweet. In Sam Donaldson's 52 years as a reporter, he's trying for complete independence. Now, for the first time, he's the retired correspondent is endorsing a candidate for federal office, Michael Bloomberg. Here's what he told Anderson Cooper. They thought it was okay. They just think it's okay. If that guy was endorsing Trump, what would Brian Seltzer say? We know what he does with Seltzer. We know that's what he does. But it's not him. Listen to fucking Katie Couric. Let me ask everybody about this race and Michael Bloomberg. First of all, he was insulting Trump the other day. Oh, my God. It was... it's so amazing, wasn't it? Okay, this is exactly, again, they're so helpful. <laughs> this is, can we show you, look for, and then I'll ask Yeah, show you the, show Michael Bloomberg doing his thing. Somebody said, uh, you know, that he's taller than me, calls me Little Mike, and the answer is, Donald, where I come from, we measure your height from your neck up. But the president attacked me again this morning on Twitter. Thank you very much, Donald. Uh, he sees our poll numbers, and I think it's fair to say he is scared because he knows I have the record and the resources to defeat him. Well, we cut off the laughs The, the there. best part of the tweet <laughs> was... He was getting laughs, and yes. Well, the best part of the tweet was he said, we're both from New York, we know the same people. Behind your back, people call you a, what did they say? Carnival a bark. carnival barker, right. barking clown who inherited a ton of money right. but through stupid deals and incompetence <laughs> lost it all or right. something like that. I, I feel like... like a heat-seeking missile. He can detect yes. your vulnerabilities. A bully. And, and, and Bloomberg, I think, in that one tweet, Donald Trump hates that his back was turned, you know, that all the New York Maccas turned their back on him, and he never was quite accepted into society. And then the art of the deal, the idea that he's a bad deal maker. He is. So uh, I talked to somebody from the Bloomberg campaign. They said they're hiring an expert on narcissism and combining that no combine no this is for real combining that person with a comedy writer to get in donald trump's head another evening anchor and today's show, she did both. Nobody's surprised. I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. I'm not angry. That's who they are. That's how they've always been. It's never been different in my lifetime. As long as I can remember, when I first became politically aware, Ronald Reagan was a Nazi. He was a horrible president that was injecting gay people with AIDS. I remember that. That was back when I was liberal. Want more proof? CNN and MSNBC analysts signed petition urging William Barr to fucking resign. Paul Butler, Frank Fluizzi, Matthew Miller, Jill Wine-Banks, Mimi Roca, Ali Honig, and Renato Mariota. Eight signed a petition. They want him gone. That's our media. 
They're fucking garbage. They're just garbage. Here's a media mix. Seltzer, and this was really big this week. Trump's evil and an autocrat. Todd was in on that. Wallace, Wallace I'm going to vote for Bloomberg. Or Sanders, I can't remember. She says she's going to vote for whoever. Anybody. Lansing, GOP doesn't know what's right. This is what airs daily on what's supposed to be our objective media. Well, I mean, I think it's going to be... I, I, you look at this, and as a in a normal political environment, you would say this seems to be he's sabotaging himself. I mean, if you think about where he was the week of the impeachment acquittal, the economy surging, you know, another big day, big week of Wall Street that week. He uh, had the Gallup poll for the first time getting him within a point of 50% approval. The Democrats are in this knife fight right now for the Democratic nomination, having this ideological fight. And a normal president would be, hey, look at this, and, and try to start reaching out to the middle, try to be above it all. But I think he's, I think he is hurting himself. I think he has been his own worst enemy. I think this doesn't play well with the middle. The fact is, most of these Trump skeptic uh, potential voters of his will all tell you, like the economy, don't like his behavior. And these, this last week, we've seen the part of his behavior that turns the middle of the electorate off the most. A battle of the billionaires, if you will, Chuck. And they're trading what some have called these schoolyard insults with the president even referring to him as mini mike he already has a nickname but does this indicate to you that bloomberg is now who the president sees as potentially his biggest rival when you know look in, in my years now both researching spending time interviewing this president get it even before he was sort of a political figure this guy respects basically one thing wealth mm. he sometimes fears it and he obviously craves it um, so Michael Bloomberg embodies everything that I think that he thinks that, that wealth equals power. And Michael Bloomberg is somebody that is extraordinarily wealthy. And I think he does fear him. He does fear that money. He does fear that bankroll. And, you know, one thing about this president is he's never subtle. He shows you what, what he fears. But first, the aspiring autocrat and the media's response. As this banner on Fox says, President Trump is... Unleashed. And that's why there are growing fears of something called democratic backsliding. This is a term used in political science, a term used to describe the erosion of institutions that sustain democracy. Another way to put it is creeping authoritarianism, a move toward autocracy. Now, that's a word we are increasingly seeing being tied to President Trump. You can see it in some of these headlines from the past week. Trump's authoritarian style is remaking America, things like that. Now, a lot of these are opinion columns, perspective pieces, but these are important and complicated concepts. My question for you is, how can the nation's news media make time and space to explain this? I mean, we live in this new story every minute, info-saturated world, but this may be the biggest story of them all. So what are the best ways to cover it? Well, one way is with a list. Harvard professor Stephen Walt has been keeping a checklist ever since 2016. He called it 10 ways to tell if your president is a dictator. Now, he wasn't saying Trump's a dictator, but he was watching for troubling signs. So he revisited the list this week, and you'll notice the check marks here. He said after impeachment, the president has been passing most of the checkpoints on the way to authoritarianism. On his list are things like fear-mongering, 
demonizing the opposition, and using state power to reward corporate backers and punish opponents. Does that sound familiar? Look, forms of government exist on a spectrum. It's not just democracy or dictatorship. It's not black or white. There are dozens of shades of gray. That's why political scientists talk about political uh, democratic backsliding. It's important to recognize that some people are predisposed to a certain amount of authoritarian thinking. This shows up all the time in polling. Some people feel there's too much democracy, and they seek a so-called strong leader, a strong man who will put up walls and protect their way of life and punish their enemies. These people have an outsized fear of threats and a desire to take action against those threats. That feeling's always been there. Most Americans don't feel that way, but it's always been there. It's been there for a long time. I mean, experts in this field are always careful to say that these challenges to democracy did not start with Trump's election. But, as the group Freedom House put it, uh, the president has worsened this picture. He has assailed essential institutions and traditions, including, and this is a list here, the separation of powers, a free press, an independent judiciary, the impartial delivery of justice, safeguards against corruption, and most disturbingly, the legitimacy of elections. And Congress hasn't pushed back enough. See the New York Times reporting this morning that the Attorney General telegraphed this comment to the White House in, in advance. Is, is, is your sense that there was coordination here, or perhaps that he, he delivered a warning so that the President wasn't caught off guard? Well, Jim, I think uh, Shimon was right on two points. One, uh, we don't know, can't know uh, uh, exactly what happened between the White House and the Justice Department. But second, we have every reason, this administration has given us every reason to be skeptical about the idea that this was some sort of uh, spontaneous, independent uh, step up by Bill Barr. When you look at how he handled the Mueller report, when you looked at uh, how he has uh, sort of set and investigate the investigators' uh, process in motion. Uh, uh, it is not credible, the idea that Bill Barr himself uh, decided to rebuke uh, the president and, and stand up for the independence of the Justice Department. That just doesn't seem to pass the test. I think what really happened is, you know, we've all made the analogy with respect to the rule of law uh, about the uh, the frog in the warm water. And the, the water gets turned up, and all of a sudden, before you know it, the frog is uh, is dead. Well, in this case, I think, liberated by acquittal, the president abruptly turned the water up so hot that the frog jumped out of the water. And that created a problem for Barr, a problem for the administration. I think he was trying to cauterize that problem with his remarks yesterday. Bernie Sanders is not going to rev up uh, this this mystical vote that's out there and unaddressed. And in fact, I predict he'll lose 44 states if he's the nominee. Yeah. 44 states is a little excessive. Try me. <laughs> well, I, and I'm on the record. I will vote for whomever. I, I, will, I, will, I will gladly and easily and handily vote for Bernie Sanders if he's the nominee. This is not personal, but my political strategist is, is like it's a four-alarm fire in my political soul. I mean, how do you, how do you as a Democratic Party tell everyone to get behind someone who is, and, and, I, and I don't know, I have no freaking clue what Democratic Socialist means, but everyone thinks that's what he is, and it sounds scary, and he's got very little. So let me ask you finally, there are 192 members of Congress who have studied or practiced law. And that doesn't give them a lock on understanding the way things should work or what's right or wrong, but you would think that there would have been some training about the way things work, how they should work, and even basically as every 
you know, kid in grade school learns about the independence of the judiciary. So are, are you at all surprised that more haven't spoken up? And do you see any kind of red line for this president or for the attorney general that you think would have more people standing up in Congress? Well, the members of Congress who are Democrats, uh, we have stood up to Donald Trump. There are ones you mentioned who Republicans have kneeled before him and bowed down. And that is very disappointing to me. When they weren't cannonballing about how evil, evil Trump is and the GOP, they were up in arms over the new ICE policy. Got another one for you in two minutes to cover. Uh, and this is another thing that we're kind of curious. What will happen next? What don't we know about it? There's a new threat emerging for sanctuary cities, as reported when we look at the L.A. Times on the front page. They're reporting that law enforcement officials in the city are pushing back against new ICE plans to deploy additional resources and agents to areas deemed sanctuaries for undocumented immigrants. So part of this really is, and when we look at Nevada, when we look at the high Latino American voting bloc, what this means. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that I think that it means that this administration is doing anything that it can to terrorize the Latinx community, right? And it is punishing, using punitive punishments for uh, states like California, for New York, just ending global entry because of the sanctuary uh, rules that are here. And so we need to be paying attention to what this president is doing and what the parameters that are needed to be put in place in states to protect this community that is under siege. And we have an election and we have a census ongoing here, Midwin. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, two things. One, I find it incredibly surprising that for a long time, the Republican Party always stood for states' rights, right? I mean, that was sort of a, a, a hallmark conservative value, was that the states had rights and the federal government should not intrude upon them. Here you have with this administration a complete opposite. But I'm going to go a little bit step further and say that this isn't just to terrorize the Latino communities. It is also for Trump to score political points with his base, because cruelty is the point. The more he can show that he is cruel against uh, immigrants of color, also very important to point out, because you never see any talk of, of illegal immigrants from Europe or anything like that. It's always the brown uh, uh, immigrants. And, and this is to, to make sure that... And there are from those countries. Absolutely. Absolutely. About 500,000 of them right now having a good time here illegally from Europe. No one bothers them. But, it, but Trump has to always make sure that he keeps his base on lock. Why? Because it isn't growing. Mm -hmm. And he knows that. So these kinds of things, what they do is they excite his base and they keep his base coalesced around him. Danielle, 30 seconds here. So it, it helps the base, Midwin mm -hmm. is saying. It also potentially affects the uh, uh, Latino voters showing up. Yeah, I think that it's all about suppression, right? And it is about cruelty, and cruelty is the point. And those are the things that voters need to keep in mind when they are going out right now in Nevada and will be in South Carolina and Super Tuesday. Who the Democratic nominee is going to be is not as important as what Donald Trump is doing at this very moment. Turning now uh, to the home front, ICE is sending more resources to sanctuary cities. The agency is deploying an elite team of Border Patrol agents to major cities, including Chicago, New York City, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. The tactical teams will specialize in high-risk operations targeting people with extensive criminal records. The units will assist teams in sanctuary cities through May. This is the Trump administration's latest move to step up immigration enforcement. In print, I won't even cover it all. I won't read it all. New York Times shares Marcus, Marxist activists for bashing bargain bases louder with Crowder. 
The move shocked some of Mr. Maz's fans who have watched him because one of YouTube's most vocal critics for failing to stop right-wing pile-on against him last year. The controversy that followed the campaign, which led to prominent conservative YouTubers, turned Mr. Maz into a YouTube mini-celebrity. Blah, 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 blah. Washington Post media columnist suddenly objects to bias against Bernie Sanders. The media keep falling in love with anybody but Bernie Sanders. It was Margaret Sullivan. Uh, Sanders, though, doesn't seem to mind his ardent followers bond with him and with one another by despising the mainstream media, often enough with good reason. Sanders is the flavor of the moment after doing well in Iowa and New Hampshire, Jones says. He's a front-runner, as much as one can be in February. The question now becomes, will the media become an accomplice, willing or otherwise, in the other candidates' effort to take down Sanders? Yeah. That's our media. Garbage. Quick hits on the damn of the new social media nuggets. First one. Teddy Schaeffler did a fucking fundraiser for Trump. The outrage from people at Oracle is comical when we know, I'll just read one, Justin Hendricks, disgusting, Oracle, Larry Ellison, you are in service to bigotry and depotism. Lefty outlet, Daily Beater, editor-at-large, Molly Jong's fast sniped, this is such a bad look, Larry Ellison. How many big fundraisers will you have for everybody else? That's all big media does. So one guy does it for Trump and it's bad. Politico poll. Majority find Hunter Biden Burmese gig in Ukraine was inappropriate. Politico published a new poll on Thursday knowing the voters were 47-47% on whether it was appropriate for the Senate last week to quit Trump. By contrast, 52% of voters believe it was inappropriate for Biden's son to take the job with Ukraine. Yeah. Nobody did anything wrong, though. That's what they say. New York Times sees four phony centrists in Democrat field. This article is damning. I'll just read some headlines that they've done so it's starting to get to the point. Front page, December 15th, Mr. Bloomberg, a 77-year-old centrist billionaire. December 24th, a grading willingness that Ms. Warren criticized her Democratic rivals, particularly more centrist opponents such as Bloomberg. January 1st, Pete Buntleg and Chris, uh, had crystallized a hard pivot to the party's ideological center. January 15, Waleed Shadid, a progressive group just as Democrats, said he was saddened by the conflict and viewed it as a distraction with the goal of overtaking the centrist frontrunner, Joe Biden. There's like 10 other headlines. Yeah. So, here's a Biden soundbite. In America... Thanks for taking the time to say hello to me. Since the mid-1700s, with occasional bouts of xenophobia, of not wanting immigrants. So we've been a constant wave of immigration. We've been able to go out and get the best of every single culture in the world. Because for somebody to get up and leave everything they know takes enormous courage. I hope you don't let anybody convince you that this is not in the overwhelming interest of the United States of America. So don't let them break your spirit. Think about what you've done. This idea you're costing us. Not costing it. 
You're making the Social Security system more secure. You're paying taxes. I know when things have been really bad for me in my life and things have been rough, whether it's losing kids or whatever it happens to be, and you have people telling you what you aren't. Don't let anybody tell you that. This is about families. some campaign fluff, alright? Let me read the article, because I thought I knew this, and I'm fucking it all up. Sorry, folks. Earliest month, an ad from Michael Bloomberg featured a photo of illegal immigrants in cages at the border that was tended as a slam on Trump. However, guess what wasn't mentioned? The photo was taken in 2014 when Obama was president. The mainstream media had been tremendously incurious about what was going on the border prior to Trump taking office, but in an actual interview with Joe Biden, George Ramos committed an act of actual journalism. Listen to this. This shocked the shit out of me. At the debate in Houston, um, you said that during the Obama-Biden administration, and I quote, we didn't lock people in cages. Um, but you actually did. Well, not, not in the same numbers as in the Trump administration, but you did. Uh, we, we found a picture of an eight-year-old boy from uh, Honduras. Yes. And what, 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 what uh, this was, was, was you know, in, in, 20, in 2014, uh, in a detention center in McAllen, Texas, I spoke yes. with with the uh, yes. The and what happened was that all the unaccompanied children were coming across the border. We tried to get them out. We kept them safe and get them out of the the detention centers that essentially that center that were run by Homeland Security and get them into communities as quickly as we can. Maybe people would say there were cages. I mean, well, just, look, I mean. You know you're not telling the truth here about the comparison of the two things. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that the numbers in your administration were not the same as the ones we're seeing right now with the Trump Well, beyond that, but look how quickly we got them out and got them back to families. Look mm-hmm. how we didn't engage and we sought the relatives here. We sought to get them into safe communities. We sought to get them out of the control of Homeland Security to get them safe. But they came unaccompanied, unaccompanied. And by the way, one of the things we should be doing, and you may recall I'm the only guy that got it done, was to provide for $750 million so people didn't want to leave in the first place by going down to Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador and making sure that we, in fact, change the circumstances which is causing them to flee to begin with. You may remember I spent, I remember that, I spent, they, they I spent hundreds of Well, no, they didn't. They dropped off extensively, extensively. And then there, no, was no. Another, there was another wave of Central American immigrants coming. Yeah, and, and, and what happened? Because they stopped funding it. This administration three years ago stopped spending the money. They stopped going after the so, gangs. They stopped the street lighting. They stopped building boys and girls clubs. They stopped the... He actually busted them. That'll never happen in our media. Now, my support in Ramos, he's a fucking piece of shit. No. By no means do I think Univision is a network. They need all this fucking illegal immigration. That's why they're there. That's what their network's about. Illegal immigration. I mean, they're fucking horrible. But Stephen Miller sums it up. This should be all over the place. Every cable news network, top of political trends and news on Twitter. But it won't. Because that means acknowledging Obama must have also been literally Hitler with concentration camps. His answer kept them safe in concentration camps? Has no one else seen this? It seems like, oh, news... Those were good cages. 
CNN, NBC, NPR, and New York Times, basically every mainstream media, jumped all over Trump and separation policy. Joe Biden, yeah, we were separating children and put them in cages because they were unaccompanied. Unaccompanied, man! It's it's just rewriting history. My son sent me something the other day. Uh, what the hell was it? It's really good. Um, I meant to get it in my script, but I didn't. Let me go to Messenger. Hold one. Now, Messenger, Tony. He got it sent to somebody. It's been said that journalists write the first draft of history in these times of information overload. Late night television hosts have joined nightly news anchors and newsroom editors' history. He said, this isn't real. And I said, yeah, it is. They write it, and then they rewrite it. Latest thing, Obama touts his economy. Axios says Trump average GDP growth outpaced his. There's only one network, Axios. Axios. Or one news source that has said, no, that's not true. Everybody else ran with this tweet. 11 years ago, near the bottom of the worst recession in generation, I signed the Recovery Act, paving the way for more than a decade of economic growth and the longest streak of job creations in American history. That's what he said. Nobody questioned him. Nobody questioned him. Nobody questioned Biden. Nobody questioned any of this shit. So here's some political news. Bloomberg's going to have Hillary as his running mate. We'll see how that works. Bernie Sanders, he ran an art about an art, an ad about Charlottesville, and then Bloomberg got another gotcha. Neither one of these has brought any outrage because the Bernie one's a lie. And the Bloomberg one is damning. If Bernie Sanders is elected, he would be our first Jewish American president. As a Jewish American, that would be a huge step forward in this country then blow back against the rise of anti-Semitism in this country. Any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. You know, they were chanting like, in Charlottesville. Jews will not replace us! Jews will not replace us, and then having a Jew literally replace them would be like, that would be so satisfying. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Tonight, a neo-Nazi in Pennsylvania, a small rural town near the New York border, splitting apart by a growing movement filled with hate. The man at the center of it says Trump's election has emboldened him and his followers. It is definitely a difficult time to be Jewish right now, considering the Trump administration's anti-Semitism, and there's been a spike in hate crimes and Nazi empowerment. Anti-Semitism, what's been called the longest hatred, still festers in America. Hate crimes are up in most major cities, with Jews suffering the highest percentage of any group. He repeatedly traffics in anti-Semitic tropes. Listen to how he talks to American Jewish Republicans. You're not going to support me because I don't want your money. You want to control your own politician. That's fine. My father's family 
was wiped out by Hitler in the Holocaust. I know about what crazy and radical and extremist politics mean. I learned that lesson as a tiny, tiny child when my mother would take me shopping and we would see people working in stores who had numbers on their arms because they were in Hitler's concentration camp. I am very proud of being Jewish and that is an essential part of who I am as a human being. What we are seeing right now, we're seeing it in America and we're seeing this all over the world, is a rise in anti-Semitism. We're seeing people being stabbed in New York City because they were Jewish. If there was ever a time in American history where we say no to religious bigotry, this is the time. If there is any people on earth who understands the danger of racism and white nationalism, it is certainly the Jewish people. I am very proud to be Jewish and look forward to being the first Jewish president in this Jewish country. Anybody, even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Then we had 300, you could learn that. Then, then um, you have 300 years of the industrial society. Uh, you put the piece of metal on the lathe, you turn the crank in the direction of the arrow, and you can have a job. And, and we created a lot of jobs. 1.98% of the world worked in, uh, in agriculture today. It's 2% in the United States. Uh, now comes the information economy. And the information economy is fundamentally different because it's built around replacing people with technology and the skill sets that you have to learn are how to think and analyze. And that is a whole degree level different. You have to have a different skill set. You have to have a lot more gray matter. Neither one of those ads or that soundbite on Bloomberg would fly if you're Republican. The Bloomberg is just piling up gays, women, stop and frisk, farming. It would just ruin his campaign. That's why he said, hey, I'm going to bring Hillary on board. <laughs> Fucking smart guy, man. Can't say he's not smart. That, twi- that was all over Twitter. What brings us to our last two articles for Dim craziness, and then we're off to news and social media nuggets. Secession in the Pacific Northwest. Some Oregon residents petitioned to join Idaho. And this is pretty interesting, and that's why I'm covering it. Frustrated by liberal policies, some Oregon residents petitioned to leave the state by moving the border with Idaho westward. The movement secured initial approval from two counties and aims to get enough signatures to put the proposal on ballots in November, according to a group called Greater Idaho. The group succeeds. Voters in southeastern Oregon may see a question on whether their county should become part of Idaho by redrawing the border. Rural counties have become increasingly outraged by laws coming out of the Oregon legislature that threaten our livelihoods, our industries, our wallet, our gun rights, and our values. We tried voting those legislators out, but rural Oregon is outnumbered, and our voices are now ignored. This is our last resort. I got your resort. I say it all the time to Matt. I haven't said it to Sean because he's too young. Pack up your shit, come to Tennessee. You'll have a voice. You'll be moderate like me. 
Because we got a bunch of liberals, we got a bunch of Christian conservatives in some area, but the majority of the people are normal people. Just middle of the road on politics. They're not going to block you, silence you. And even though the media tries to twist it, most of the proposals that go through the legislature are just common sense stuff. There's not a bunch of crazy crap. I mean, you might think the gun shit's crazy, but when everybody's trying to take everybody's gun, of course they're going to do something. It's a Republican-led House and Senate in the state. And then finally, a no-brainer. No bueno. But this actually got fucking a Pew Research. Twitter using Dems far more liberal than non-Twitter using base. Because that's the echo chamber. Twitter is all liberal all the time. In a country where the squeaky wheel gets the grease, the Democratic Party may be getting led astray by a small but vocal minority on social media. A Pew Research Center study released February 3rd found that the political views and primary candidate preferences of Democrats on Twitter differ from those who are not on the platform. The report released some dire numbers, including how the 29% of Democrats who use the platform are more liberal and less inclined to say the party could elect a candidate who seeks common ground with Republicans than a Democrat who are not on Twitter. These same liberals also express different preferences to whom the Democratic Party should choose in 2020. With liberals running the company, it's no wonder that liberals dominate the platform. Twitter employees donate overwhelmingly to far-left candidates. According to OpenSecrets.org, a project of nonpartisan centers for responsive politics, Twitter staff gave $109,456 to politicians for the 2020 cycle. As of early February, the biggest recipient was Warren. Followed by the dropout, Harris. Jack Dorsey, the CEO, even mourned the departure of Andrew Yang from the race, who was a prominent, a proponent of radical economic reforms such as universal basic income. Another reason might be because Twitter has ways of controlling the conversation. One example is Twitter's hateful conduct policy, which can be used to ban users for misgendering trans people. In other words, referring to trans individual as their biological gender is not allowed. In one major incident, Twitter banned feminist my, 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 uh, Megan Murphy, which we already covered. When moderates are not able to counter the radicals, the discouraging the discourse goes off the deep end. The study also expounded further on how different Twitter-using Democrats are from those who do not use Twitter. About two-thirds of Democrats who do not use Twitter say it's more important for Democratic candidates to seek common ground with Republicans, even if it means giving up some things Democrats want. By contrast, a smaller percentage of Twitter using Democrats, 54%, take this view. 45 prefer a candidate or push hard for policies Democrats want, even if it makes it much harder to get things done. This clear divide is made manifest among Democrats' choice of presidential nominees as well. Democrats on Twitter are 11 points less likely to name Joe Biden as their first choice for the nomination than Democrats who are not on Twitter. The f- more le- left-leaning Twitter liberals' candidate of choice appear to be the hard left, such as Warren and Sanders. They receive higher levels of support among Twitter-using Democrats and among those who are not Twitter users. And that does not surprise me. It's just like if you look at a person who doesn't use social media and you ask them political questions, they're going to say the same thing. They want middle-of-the-road stuff. They don't want far stuff. They want compromise. They want our government to move forward, 
Thus, this podcast was for normal Americans. I might sound extreme when I'm bashing the left or the, the gay mafia and all that stuff. But we elect these people to get things done. And if you have to compromise some of the things, well, that's fine. At least we get some progress. I think if you lined up all the Americans who don't use social media, they would say, hey, we need immigration reform. We can't sustain 13 million fucking illegals in this country. And we can't have states just handing them a driver's license and voter rights. That's not right. Make a path to citizenship. Because if you really look at the, you know, I've been watching Narcos Mexico. And of course, I went back and finished that really quick. So I went back to Narcos fucking Narcos, the first one, about a Colombia. Think of all the money that leaves this country and doesn't go back in our economy because we have all these illegals sending it back to Mexico. Yeah, when they're citizens, they might do the same thing. But the preponderance of this money is going to another country. It's not even spent in our economy. And we've already touched about all the damage caused by illegal drivers, drunk driving, deaths, damaged property. Jesus Christ. There's no repercussion in states like California because they can't even get deported for that. They can go kill motherfuckers. And in New York, they just get handed a fucking burner phone and a couple debit cards. So going out to a break, uh, let me see what we're going to play something different uh, what doesn't fit, one of these things is not like the other can you say which one of them okay, we're going to play a Heather Lynn soundbite, rejected Valentine's Day pitch I think it's kind of funny because we don't have a lighter for today and that'll be your music break as we go into news and social media nuggets, and we're going straight in, there'll be no military corner today trying to cut the show down, and we'll go straight into our college crazy. Enjoy. Gentlemen, are you single this Valentine's Day? You want to get some help getting the ladies to want to smash pissers with you? Then buy these cards so girls that look like me still won't talk to you. Oh, hell, I'd fuck you. We have cards for all occasions, such as, I've just shit my pants. Can I get in yours? How about, are those... Astronaut pants, cause I'd fuck Uranus. Who could resist? I can still tolerate your presence after I've come. How about, can we just pretend I've already said everything I need to say in order for you to fuck me? A family favorite, spit in my mouth. If I can't have you, nobody will. How did this get past security? Oh, this one heads close to home. After going through your trash, I've decided that we have a lot in common. How about this? I love you. What the fuck is this? How the fuck did that even get in here? Jesus Christ, who the hell Dusty. knows? This one's family friendly. Is your mouth a daycare? Because I'd like to drop my kids off. Oh, that is so sweet. How about this one? I have a gun. Get in the van. Yo, bitch, some titties got a man? Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. Fire. Got it. Donna, it appears we've been let go. What the fuck? I'm going to burn this goddamn place to the ground. Fuck what you want that? Donna, no! Black Rifle Coffee. Great at coffee. Bad at romance.
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. Were you trying to get crazy with this scene? Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. The cop is letting, he told me, Justin, he told me he could not help me. He has nowhere for me to go. He's watching, these cops are watching this happen. There's another one. They're still throwing stuff. That is from Caitlin Bennett. This is what happens when a Trump supporter goes to college campus. Leftist said, Ohio U started a riot when Joel Patrick, 1776, and I showed up. And the OU police let it happen. I think real Donald Trump should strip funding from universities like this that harbor terrorists. It's pretty bad. Then a professor promotes Antifa-esque video encouraging followers to fuck shit up. To all our friends, family, students, wage workers, teachers, musicians, transit workers, fuck the police three is coming, J31, right here in New York City. We encourage you to link up with your friends, your family, and think of the ways you can move in infinity to build and fuck shit up on J31 all day long. Pay attention to our social media, where we're going to post the meetup location so that we can converge and move together later that evening. The mood for J31 is simple. Fuck your 275. No cops in the MTA, free transit, no harassment, period, and full accessibility. We hope that you come through and move with us on J31. Fuck the police. It is University of Buffalo professor Natisha Dillon, a New York University adjutant instructor, Amin Hussein, co-founders of leftist movement, Decolonizing the Place, featured video clip on DTP Twitter feed showing support for disruptive gatherings and refusing to pay fares on the nation's largest public transit. That's what we need. We need more of that teaching our kids. Harvard professor Cornell West refers to Trump as a neo-fascist gangster. And we are going to remove our fellow citizen, a neo-fascist gangster from the White House now in Manchester. He's got to go. You got to go. You got to go, West said. 
He's a piece of shit. He's on MSNBC all the time. Berkeley opens second center for undocumented students and allies citing anti-immigration political climate. University of California, Berkeley opened its new Robert D. Haas undocumented, undocumented community resource center. Uh... In February, announcing the facility as a space officially for undocumented students and allies, the Undocumented Community Resource Center epitomizes the university as a place that values the diverse backgrounds, inclusivity, and representations on this campus. Yeah, that's nice. Simultaneously, Berkeley warns students about coronavirus memes and gifts that spread xenophobia. Fear of the coronavirus stems from xenophobia and racism in America, according to faculty at the University of California, Berkeley. Biased American public health and immigration policies are to blame for Americans' anxiety over politi- potentially deadly virus. Oh, really? The piece titled, Coronavirus, Fear of Asians Rooted in Law in American History of Prejudicial Policies. Opinions of two UC Berkeley educators... Professor John A. Powell, director of Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute, is quoted saying that coronavirus woes stem partly from an assumption that the West, particularly Anglo-American Christians, should dominate the world. He adds that debate about Chinese expansionism, Chinese 5G network, and Chinese espionage can also reveal racist American tendency. Powell concludes that a global society is the only path forward and that all white people just need to get coronavirus and die. That's what he wants. That's what he's saying. 17 arrested as grad school block roadway. Uh, this one was um, US UCSC grade strike in mid-January. This video is from University of California, Santa Cruz, and it's all over Twitter, and the truck driver almost kills him, and I love it. Don't be mine. Students refuse to date Trump supporters. This one, oh, you got to listen to it. Hi, I'm Eduardo Norette with Campus Reform. With Valentine's Day coming up, we're going to Georgetown University to see if students would date someone with opposite political views. So Valentine's Day is coming up. Would you ever date someone on the opposite uh, side of the political spectrum? Um, no, I do not think that I would because I don't think that I could be with someone that supports who's currently in the White House. I feel like that's too radical for me, so no. I would not, probably, unless they were like really strong, extenuating circumstances. No. Probably not. Um, not on the complete end of the spectrum. Um, probably not even moderates. Um, I'm just very critical of that. So would you date someone on the opposite side of the political spectrum as you? Uh, probably not. Why not? What things come to mind? What are some of the big reasons for you? Um, there's just so many differences between like the two main political parties. I feel like there will just be too much conflict within the relationship. Good question. Maybe. Um, depends on how open-minded they are, I would say. I think I would, yes. I think just because you disagree on some topical political issues doesn't mean you have a radically different set of values. Is there an issue for you that's a deal breaker? Like what are, if you have to consider, you know, it's hard to read someone's entire political belief system. So if there's one or two things that you knew right off the bat, oh, I could date someone or, or no, I couldn't because they believe this or this. Like what are some of the issues that stand out to you? Um, this is going to be kind of vague, but honestly, if they're just overall Trump supporter. <laughs> I feel like if they were a Trump supporter, I don't think I could date them because I feel like, in my opinion, that shows a little bit about their character. Just the fact that you would support someone like that means that you probably 
would not agree with my morals and like my values and my ideals. I feel like my life particularly can get very political in terms of um, whether we're thinking about like civil rights or reproductive rights or like a right to education, making things accessible for low-income people. Today it sounds like you're basically saying you probably wouldn't date someone on the conservative side of things. I don't know if I'm right or wrong mm -hmm. about that. That's correct. If they're pro-life, I think that's kind of where I draw the line. I think at some point your political views could mean you're a bad person. Um, yeah, I would say, honestly, it's not a question about the ends of their policies. It's more so about how they approach humans' problems. And if you're someone who, say, um, thinks that we should put small children in like cages and think that's, thinks that's a good idea, I think that that is a reflection of your character, and I wouldn't want to date someone who I disagreed with so strongly on those things. So I guess from what you're, I guess I could tell you probably wouldn't want to date a Trump supporter? Um, yeah, probably not. Um, probably things on like, uh, immigration, if they didn't have the same, um, opinion as me about that, or if they were really radical about it, and if they were more like on the build a wall side <laughs> probably not um i am on the left um i think that there needs to be some sort of fundamental shift within our society um so would you date a trump supporter then i don't know depends on how open-minded they are yeah so you're saying you wouldn't date a trump supporter yeah probably why not um i don't know i really don't like him his political views but mainly his um character like the way he presents himself, things he said about people with disabilities, the things he said about women. It just, it's a question of empathy, honestly. Like, they're obviously come, coming from some place of hurt and anger. And um, there's something deep down within them, they, a problem, a, a hurt that wants to be talked about and solved. And I think that if they're willing to have the conversation, then yeah. If you choose to support someone who chooses to say stuff like that, that, that shows a lot about your character. Yeah, that's that's nice. University of Utah sends free made-to-order pleasure packs for Valentine's Day. Launch a free condom and lubricant service delivered straight to students' dorm. Brand new pleasure pack delivery service can be customized with various combinations of barrier methods, including condoms, oral dams, and lubricants. Students can choose from all manners of condoms, including lubricated latex condoms, latex-free, and internal condoms are offered. While making these selections to their customized pleasure packs, students are presented with get-to-know-your-lube-guide, Water-based, silicone, oil, this, yeah. After selecting lubricants, students take a survey of how they employ barrier methods and how often they use them while performing. Students in search of pleasure packs are also asked multiple questions about their sexuality. Options include exclusively gay, mostly gay, and I'll explain in my own words. Yeah. Okay, I'm not reading anymore. That's just fucking bullshit. I swear to God. That's the University of Utah. Half these fuckers are Mormons. Let's go to gay shit. Hey, 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 bow, 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 Lil pump in the cut. Hey, gang shit, 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 gang shit. Got into medicine to help people, so trust me when I tell you that helping you helps me too. You know, it's difficult for me to talk about certain things, biological things. Of course, doctor-patient confidentiality. Till recently, I didn't have a word for 
what I felt like on the inside. I let people assume. I, I didn't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable, but that just made me feel worse. You know, I hate labels, and here I am trying to give myself one. Hmm. Well, look, obviously, I understand biology. There are more than two sexes. I don't understand all the layers of identity, but I do know fundamentally that not living one's truth is detrimental to your psyche. And I don't want to do that to myself anymore. This accident made it very clear that tomorrow is not a guarantee, and I need to be me. I'm getting closer every day to exactly what that is. But for now, I know... I'm not all woman. Thank you for trusting me with that. It must have been very difficult to live with that for so long. <laughs> and thank you. I had no idea how badly I needed to say that to someone. <sighs> Wish I knew it was going to be this easy with Genevieve. Well, you don't have to tell her until you're ready. Yeah, but what if she rejects me? Bishop? You are remarkable. I mean it. If Genevieve rejects you, she didn't deserve you in the first place. That's from the Fox doc uh, drama Doctor, who claims to understand biology. There are more than two sexes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fucking fantastic. Yeah, we, we gotta shove that in everything now. New NBC features sympathetic story on trans boy who started transition at age of two. Hi, Trinkie. Jacob LeMay is nine now. He loves his hedgehog trinket, playing hockey, and hanging out with his sisters. He's a typical fourth grader in every way but one. What does being transgender mean to you? It's not how you act or what you wear or anything like, like that. It's just how you really are inside. And you just feel like you just got put in the wrong body. Okay. We first met Jacob and his family when he was five, not long after he transitioned. Were you always the brother? I'm not always. What were you before? I'm their my sister. How come it changed? Um, because I wanted to be a boy. Jacob was just two when he started insisting he was a boy. It was almost as if he was a thousand miles away from us and retreating. And it wasn't until we were able to say to him that we believed him and that he could live as the boy he always knew he was. That's when we got our child back. They just fuck up. They think that that's going to make... It's like... The, it goes back to... I say it so many times that's annoying. During the AIDS crisis, the one kid that got it from a blood transfusion, and they pushed it all over the place, tried to get normals to think that this was going to kill them all in their sleep. This is actually probably the opposite. Saying that a parent lets their kid change sex at the age of two, you're probably making more people dig their heels. I mean, seriously, that was on NBC Nightly News. Why would you do that? Why? 
Why would you think people think that's normal? They don't. That's not normal. Not at all. And as I talked last podcast, I had to cover it this time, HGTV House Hunters features first thruple. Nuclear family is owed so 20th century. By the way, I'm not going to do that article, but I, I think just reading it last podcast got the point across that the nuclear family's all bullshit and we were duped and America's all about gay shit. I could read it, but it's just more mumbo jumbo for David Brooks. But I think that's what they're trying to do with all this thruples and gay and trannies. It's kind of disturbing. The latest iteration comes HGTV popular program House Hunter, which features the first thruple, a three-person Polly Morris couple, in an episode that aired Wednesday night just in time for Valentine's Day. The episode titled Three's Not a Crown Colorado Springs introduced married couple Brian and Lori of two biological children together and their partner, Angelica. The way People Magazine tells it, Brian and Lori fell in love with Jelly after meeting her at a bar and they're freaks of the trio and in a relationship with Brian and Lori exchange of vows of Jelly and commitment ceremony. Uh, e! News reported Brian and Larry married in 2002 and have two kids, age 10, 12. I understood from day one, even when we were dating, that Lori was bisexual and interested in women and men. And so we evolved into a point where we were comfortable with that. Of course you're comfortable. You're a guy. One of them might have a haircut or a headache. The other one you can get, you can get freaky with. I mean, what the fuck? They evolved. That was evolution. It's, it's headed. We're all going to be extinct soon. It didn't plan on being in a relationship with a married couple, but it just happened very naturally and organically. That's not natural or organic. Online media was all over the episode. Radar Online heralded the HGTV a brave decision while Glamour crowned House Hunters just featured its first ever thruple and fans are living for it. They're living for it. Really. Living for it. And yet somehow there were still critics whining that the episode wasn't representative enough. Newsweek found one Twitter user said, without looking, I knew it was two women with a man, all white, who don't use the word triad. I really hope poly representation gets whiter soon. Yeah, because the only ones that count are blacks. Got it. Uh, yeah, what a shame. Again, pushing polymory is not a new cultural phenomenon. Scripted TV shows have featured that thruple since MRC Culture on TV blog started. ABC Mistresses, NBC Heartbeat, the Mysteries of Laura, Netflix Insatiable, CBS SWAT, which I bitched about, Showtime's The L Word, Generation Q, and Single Parents. Yeah. I didn't cover it. But it pissed me off, and I did it for one episode, then it went away. They're anal dudes in a relationship, so he's bi now. And it was two white people, by the way, so they fucked up. Sony wants to introduce a bisexual Spider-Man with a boyfriend in an upcoming movie. Tom Holland, who currently plays Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, has lobbied for a gay Spider-Man. But now they're going to just do it. Um, this was the answer. When asked during a Q&A session at New York Film Academy in October if Marvel had plans to introduce more LGBT characters, uh, especially the T-trans characters... Fag reply and affirmation. Yes, absolutely. Yes, very soon in a movie we're shooting right now. So Spider-Man's going to be gay. Yeah. That's nice. Freeform unveils crazy cute gay rom-com in time for Valentine's Day. 
Freeform is here to remind us that media depiction of heterosexuality are so 2019. Grey's Anatomy actor Jake Pirelli spoke with TV Online about the new made-for-TV crazy cute gay Valentine movie he's starring in. The Thing About Harry is the latest Hollywood attempt to take the high school rom-com classics and reinventing them according to the standards of our LGBTQ-obsessed 21st century. Pirelli plays Sam, a pansexual college student who develops a romance with a young man named Harry. Pansexual meaning not limited in sexual choice with regard to biological sex, gender, identity. Because we need more than that. We ain't got enough of it. Then, of course, the big one on conservative, and I just ignored it because you're playing into their fucking thing, cons. Pledge allegiance to the drag. AOC joins RuPaul's drag race as guest judge. A few folks still wondering why the Democrats are not doing so hot this election cycle. Could have been anything to do with the fact that sham and impeachment and drag queens are the priorities? Gay media outlet Pink News Com was all giddy with excitement on Thursday. Announced the de facto leader of the Democratic Party, AOC, will guest a RuPaul's drag race. Let's just hope she knows more about drag than she does about economics. Milton Keyes would agree with that sentiment if you were real, that is. The AOC News came as a Bravo show announced details about its upcoming 12th season, which is incorporating a patriotic theme. Yeah, nothing's more patriotic than fucking trannies. Yeah. But at the same time, Pink News, uh, LGBT Nation, Gay Times, all rolled out articles, and Chad Felix Green, Backlash... This is the first time I'm hearing of it. Gay Times. AOC tells conservatives to go back to Party City following drag race. Again, did e- anyone even knew this happened? AOC dimis- dismisses complaints about our appearance on RuPaul Drag Race with classic one-liner. AOC's patriotism for drag race appears, guys, I'm starting to think she doesn't want to actually legislate and is only using a congressional seat to boost a celebrity profile. We'll investigate further and report back, he says. I don't even know what's happening. I really don't care. I don't watch RuPaul. And I don't watch AOC. Chase Strangio, if you are angry or think it's unfair for a trans girl to beat a cis girl in a sporting event, then fundamentally you don't think trans girls are real girls. It's that simple. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't... Why would I... No, I don't think they're real girls. What's wrong with that? And then we have Buttleg. The queer opposition to Pete Buttleg. That's all over the place now. Um, over the La- Los Angeles Review of Books, Greta LaFur noted that the time cover Buttleg and his husband Chaston, or Chaston, well, I don't care, looked like a normal Rockwell painting. It was just so white. She went on to claim that the cover depicted heterosexuality without women. Now the New Yorker's on the case with Andrew Sullivan, the straight politician in the gay man's body. He's straight because it's isn't a hard leftist. I kid you not. Masha Gessen writes, the notion that some of us think Buttleg is not gay enough has an unidentifiable relationship to the facts, which are that, for the purpose of this discussion, people who grew up queer in the country fall into two distinct categories of experiences. One is the experience of never fitting in, being bullied by classmates for the way you walk, the way you look in clothes, the way you hit or fail to hit. All the things that set you apart before you have language to describe them. And then there's the other experience, a life of blending in only to surprise your classmates or more likely former classmates who follow you on social media with the revelation that you are gay 
I am not arguing that one category experience is worse or more difficult or painful than the other. There are people who revel in their specialness from an early age, and there are people who fit in but feel tormented by their secret. I am saying only that these two kind of experiences are very different. Mary Jones. So homosexuality is a political stance? Got it. Mad Boogeyman. Has the term straight adjacent been coined yet, or can I claim credit? Here's butt leg. And nobody is experiencing the pain of living under this presidency more than black Americans and other Americans of color, which is why we absolutely must come together and defeat this president in November. See, the first part is what he's saying. The second part is a protester, an LGBT mafia person, attacking him. And that's the problem. That's where we're at on this conversation. The reality is because it's kind of like what hardcore African Americans did with Barack Obama. He wasn't black enough because he just didn't talk about black things. With Buttleg, he's not talking about gay things enough. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. And for him to be the first gay president, he has to do what the first black president didn't do, so they think, and just talk about gay shit. And if he doesn't do that, well, you know what? Mm -mm. He's not a real gay man. But there is pushback. Controversy at Texas A&M after student petition against drag show funded by university. Texas A&M student group MSC Town Hall will host a drag queen competition featured featuring RuPaul Drag Race. Uh, Monica Hart on February 19th. Student opposition have started a petition to stop the event. On February 19th, queens who advanced from previous round of auditions are set to stage, blah, 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 blah. Texas A&M has long reputation as a conservative university due to its military, agriculture, mechanical roots. And the review's most recent rankings, however, Texas A&M did not make the top 20. In 2014, Texas A&M was ranked 19 on the LGBT unfriendly college list by Princeton Review. So a bunch of these kids are kept pushing back and saying, no, we don't want this on our campus. And, of course, the gist is is they're all a bunch of fucking homophobes. So, yeah. It's nice to see some people push back. SB Nation, I believe, is our last gay thing. Outsports decries shameful war against transgender athletes. I'll just read 
the highlights. There's a war being waged against transgender students in the U.S. across the country. Conservative state legislatures are trying to prevent trans children from competing in sports according to the gender identity. They say their discriminatory legislation is meant to preserve the competitive integrity of youth and high school athletics, because it is. But the truth is, the proposals single out vulnerable groups of children, prohibiting them from embracing their identities. There is also no evidence transgender athletes possess competitive advantages over their cisgender peers. In fact, as LGBTQ sports advocate Helen Carroll told The Wired, there are as many as 200 transgender athletes competing in NCAA sports, and most of them haven't caused any controversy. The unwieldy bureaucracy bureaucratic excuse me, process can create a complication, such as when one transgender middle school student was misplaced on the boys' track roster for the first couple of meets. The girl's father told the Phoenix News Times his daughter was shell-shocked by their experience and quit playing sports for the rest of middle school. I mean, what the fuck? What the fuck? How can you with any common sense any type of intelligence say there is no competitive disadvantage. How can you say that? It's a boy. It's a girl. Big difference. Everything's racist now. Everything is racist. Everything is racist according to me. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. Everything is racist according to me. Now, Rena, uh, explain something to me that I just can't figure out. Uh, and that is, President Trump said he was going to have a commission on voter fraud. And he claimed there was so much voter fraud. What happened to that commission and what did they find out? Oh, that commission was like everything else, just a lip service from the president. The president. Oh, you mean he didn't do it? <laughs> Are we surprised? Well, you know, here's the patch and go strategy that the White House employs. Uh, because the president tends to speak out of his rear end on this kind of stuff. Republicans, frankly, they, there's a lot of misinformation. I'm talking to Republican voters of every, uh, mainly above the age of 50 out in the Western states. They don't really know any of what's happening to people like us. Uh, how we are not being able, allowed to vote in certain states. I mean, this is just a suppression efforts. They almost act as if there's no problem. And so the reality is this. We have to get smart. We have to vote for people who we know will represent our communities, who we know are going to take action on the first day yeah. they go to office. And and that's really all that can be done because Republicans are going to continue the same playbook of feigning ignorance on these issues. Well, you obviously Rena is a Republican, not a Trumpican. <laughs> but uh Rena as the head of the non Trumpicans on uh this show, at least you the head tonight. <laughs> Never Trump. Did, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump ever come up with this birth certificate he claimed he had on Barack Obama? Never. I mean this is this is what he was known for, right? It was the very thing that he led with. That's what he uh, brought publicly. him into politics. Yeah. And, and, and now what? We've come so far away from that. But we shouldn't forget who the man is. He is a racist to the core. He has a problem with anybody whose skin color is darker than his. Well, that's Sharpton being Sharpton, but I had to play it. <coughs> Kaepernick announces new plans, says he's fighting against systematic oppression, dehumanization, and colonization. He's even writing a memoir. Yeah. 
I won't read it. If things are so hard for minorities, why am I reading the following? Newly updated Air Force dress code will allow hijabs, turbans, and beards for Muslims and Sikhs. Server man. I couldn't have a cross, my friends. You can't have St. Christopher. You can't wear any of that shit. But you can have yarmulkes. You can have fucking hijabs, turbans. You can wear all that shit. So we're just so... Well, we just suppress people. Alright, as a woman, this editor gets very tired of being treated as a voting demographic and not as an individual. She can only imagine how frustrated minorities are. Here is David Frum. This is such an important point. A black turnout in 2020 even approaches turnout in 2012. Michigan and Pennsylvania are lost to Trump, and the decision shifts from Midwest to North Carolina and Georgia. Replies. I rejected that idea that my vote could be assumed by the fact that I have two X chromosomes. I have a feeling that an increasing number of people are rejecting the idea it could be assumed by the color of their skins. Result matter, and this is gross. Others, they're not things. They're not things. I mean, that's the why the left isn't getting through in a lot of areas. Because you just look at everybody as a check block. Not all blacks think the same. Not all whites think the same, you fucking moron. Richard Dawkins has said some dumb things. But this is some racist shit. Richard Dawkins... It's one thing to deplore eugenics on ideological, political, moral grounds. It's quite another to conclude that it wouldn't work in practice. Of course it would. It would work for cows, whores, pigs, dogs, and roses. Why on earth wouldn't work on humans? Facts ignore ideology. Ronnie Laura Palmer. I've literally never seen an argument against eugenics that hinges on the idea that whether or not it works. The issue is that what it would mean to say eugenic work, which you conveniently have not defined. Also, like we have selectively bred dogs whose eyeballs can roll out of their heads when sneezing and have trouble even breathing. Horses with fatal digestive issues. And the list goes on. What do you mean by work? Other people. Just leaving it there. Joanne Harris. The thing about people who believe in eugenics is that they always believe themselves to be the superior kind of human. No one ever thinks that it could make people like them obsolete. So there's our racist shit. Because what they're really talking about, they don't know. Because the beginning of eugenics was to get rid of black people. Two, climate! Okay. Okay. How dare you! It's not all about energy. It's about raising awareness for climate change in schools and all over Charlotte. Because here's the thing. Changes can be made. This is the first step to radical action, and we need it to happen. How dare you? We will make sure they, that we put them against the wall. You know, you, you know you're a pollutant. Too much CO2. So we have to get rid of the babies. That's a big problem to stopping having babies at night and night. We need to eat the babies. How dare you?
First, the U.N. Weather Agency is reporting that a research base on Antarctica's northern tip is reporting a temperature of nearly 65 degrees Fahrenheit. If confirmed, that would be a record high for the notoriously frigid tundra. The previous record was 17.5 degrees. For reference, it is currently 45 degrees here in New York City. It is warmer today in Antarctica than it is in New York City. A very different scene in Antarctica, where the temperature climbed into the mid-60s, a record high, stoking concerns over climate change. Okay, sounding the alarm as Antarctica's temperature is the hottest it's ever been. What this means for the rest of the world if things keep heating up in the South Pole? Scientists are sounding the alarm this morning after the world's coldest continent set a record high temperature. A part of Antarctica reached 65 degrees Fahrenheit on Thursday, eclipsing a 63.5 degree reading from 2015. This map shows the anomaly tracked by the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. So the day the record high was recorded, Antarctica was warmer than some parts of Texas. New York Times climate reporter Kendra Pierre Lewis joins us now to talk about this a little bit. And Kendra, the United Nations says that the Antarctica's temperature has risen more than 77 degrees Fahrenheit in 50 years. What will happen if the temperature continues at this pace? It's a climate signal, right? It's telling us that the models are right. It's telling us that the uh, that climate change is happening. It's telling us sort of everything that we've been know- we've known to be happening for a while in the climate reports, which is that, you know, if we don't do something to sort of rein in our greenhouse gas emissions, catastrophic things will happen. It's also not great for the animals that live in the Antarctica. Well, now we want to turn to a disturbing development in Antarctica. This past Thursday, the continent reached its highest temperature ever recorded, uh, 65 degrees Fahrenheit. That's over 18 degrees Celsius. We're talking Antarctica here. Scientists say that many of Antarctica's glaciers are melting because of global warming. Our Robin Kerno looks at the long-term implications for the coldest place, should be the coldest place on the planet. Climate activists are sounding the alarm after researchers measure the highest temperature ever recorded in Antarctica. Antarctica. CNN's Natasha Chen has more on the climate concerns. A chilling milestone for the planet. A research base in Antarctica says it has recorded the hottest temperature on record for the continent. Scientists say a remote station in the northwest tip near South America reached 65 degrees Fahrenheit on Thursday, almost a full degree higher than the previous record measured five years ago. It's among the fastest warming regions of the planet. We hear a lot about the Arctic, but you know this particular part of the Antarctic Peninsula is warming very quickly. Uh, over the past 50 years, it's warmed almost 3 degrees Celsius. Antarctica is known for its frozen tundra conditions with some of the coldest temperatures on Earth. But when it clocked in a few days ago with temperatures similar to those in Southern California, climate activists raised the alarm. Everything you just heard is cherry-picked data and bullshit. It's bullshit. Stanford faculty hold teach and to train climate activists. Uh, environmental group Fossil Free Stanford hosted a faculty-led teaching money to educate activists in their fight to convince Stanford University to divest from fossil fuels. The industry wants to be able to drill wherever they want to, and this happens to minority Latinx community. Boom! There it is. Yeah. We can't talk about the climate without talking about 
gender, race, homosexuality. I don't know what it has to do with the climate. Maybe it's gay people that are fucking killing the ozone. But maybe the conservatives should try that. New York Times delivers page one climate lecture demanding radical changes in Australia. In a country where there always been more space than people were landing wildlife for cherries like Picasso, nature's closing in. Fueled by climate change and the world refusal to address it, the fires that have burned across Australia are not just destroying lives or turning forests as large as nation into ashen moonscapes. They are also forcing Australians to imagine an entirely new way of life when summer is feared, when air filters hum in the homes that are bunkers with kids kept indoors, when birdsong and the rustle of marsupials, blah, blah, blah. I'm standing here, a traveler from a new reality, a burning Australia. Lynette Woolworth, an Australian filmmaker, traveled a crowd of international executives. What was feared and what was warned is no longer in our future a topic for debate. It's here! We have seen the unfolding wings of climate change. Like the fires, it's a metaphor that lingers. What many of us have witnessed as fire season does feel alive like a monstrous gathering force threatening to devour what we hold most dear on the continent that will grow only hotter, drier, and more flammable. The conservative government is still playing down the role of climate change despite polls showing public anger hitting a feverish level. The problem is, when you break it all down, that's not the case. It was fucking arsons. That, that was the case. So in light of this, here's Warren proposing a blue new deal. Because the green deal wasn't good enough. She knows she can't get it through. But the blue deal from our oceans, well, maybe we'll just get Mr. and Mrs. Middle America to jump on board of the blue new deal. But I feel safe to say it here. How are we going to deal with this? And the answer is, now, now be easy. Hold on to your neighbor if you need to. Not in a creepy way. <laughs> No creepy way. Okay. Okay. Here it is. You ready? I believe in science. That's right. You bet. You bet. First ever science chant. So, yeah, I'm going to increase by tenfold the money we put into science, basic science, applied science, every part of this. We got to innovate out of this problem. And also, right at the core, has got to be environmental justice. For, for decades in this country, this nation has permitted toxic waste dumps, polluting factories to be located in or next to communities of color. It has damaged the health of children who live in those communities, of seniors. It has destroyed property values. I'm committing a trillion dollars to environmental justice. It has to be at the heart of what we do. at ElizabethWarren.com, but i got to mention one more. I'm all for a Green New Deal, but it's not enough. we got to have a Blue New Deal to save our oceans as well. Mike, everything with Warren, how you paying for it? 
How? Do you have any way to show you're going to pay for any of this shit? Every proposal you put out is never funded, never sourced. And isn't that what we do when conservatives talk about it? Conservatives talk about proposals. They have to have a GAO. Here, oh, we just make it up. To liberal shit. You're the next contestant on Liberal Shit. No matter their immigration status, I want every Angelino to know their rights and how to exercise them. Remember, you have the right to remain silent. You don't have to open your door to an ICE agent that doesn't have a warrant signed by a judge. You have the right to speak to a lawyer before signing any documents or speaking to law enforcement. And if you need help finding an attorney, you can call 311 and learn more about our Justice Fund and other resources that offer legal support. And whenever possible, keep a record of everything that happens. Take note of an officer's name and badge number, of when and where you're being questioned, so you can use that information in your own defense. And most importantly, I want you to know you do not need to be afraid. Your city is on your side. And rest assured, here in Los Angeles, we are not coordinating with Our police force does not do the job of federal law enforcement. So I want to reiterate what the mayor just said. The Los Angeles Police Department is not assisting ICE in any way. We will not enforce immigration laws that are civil in nature and that fall under the jurisdiction of the federal government. Immigration is a federal matter. Safety is a police matter. And we're not going to mix those two. Everything we do is focused on what's best for the security and safety of all Angelinos and consistent with our commitment to constitutional policing and deepening our community partnerships. Simply put, we're here to protect and serve all of the people of Los Angeles, regardless of their immigration status. In Los Angeles, we draw strength from the diverse, dynamic communities that call our city home. And we support immigrant families because they're our friends, neighbors, colleagues, confidants, our fellow taxpayers, local business owners, and co-workers. For us, this isn't partisan politics. It's about being a good neighbor. It's about who we are as Angelinos and who we should always be as Americans. And we will never let fear and intimidation win the day. We are in this together. And we believe that Los Angeles and the United States are places where every family should remain together, where everyone should feel safe, and where everybody belongs. That's the L.A. Mayor, Eric Garcetti. Regardless of your immigration status, want every Angelino to know your city's on your side here in Los Angeles. Our police department does not coordinate with ICE. And these new things, we're just going to ignore them. Sam Valley. So this could free Garcetti and the LAPD to remove the bums that have been camping out on the street. Roxanne Hodge. Can our police also let it slide when we speed or miss stoplights? How about when someone wants to build a treehouse without a permit? Or here's a good one. Choose to work as an independent contractor without triggering AB5 enforcement. Brian O'Kelly, please provide us with a comprehensive list of all the laws you don't feel like enforcing. We'd like to know which ones we can break with impunity. This is a real slap in the face to all law-abiding citizens. If people can't even respect our country's immigration laws, why should we be catering to them 24-7? Eric Racy. 
You are losing a lot of reasonable progressives on this issue. There is to be something between children and cages, and there's no such thing as undocumented immigrant. We should know who is coming into our country and have control over it with welcome, while welcoming law-abiding citizens. And those are all L.A. people. Final, if only you were committed to the 59,000 homeless human beings suffering on the Los Angeles streets, women, children, veterans, you abandon them all. Los Angeles deserves better. And why do they do this? Every podcast I list all the illegal crimes. This is coming to our country, folks. A woman was killed and skinned in Mexico. Skinned. That's the kind of crimes that are happening in our country, and the only way you hear it's on this podcast when I stumble across them. Because nobody's reporting them. Katie Hill. Graduate students at University of California, Santa Cruz, are still refusing to submit grades to the fall 29th semester, and now also refusing to work altogether. And she is supporting what we covered in the College Crazy... And then she goes after Joni Erst. Joni Erst has cast a dark cloud over today's Valentine's Day by refusing to renew VAWA. She's putting guns in the hands of abusive boyfriends, husbands, and stalkers to put countless lives at risk. And the whole world went after her and said, wait a minute, Joni Erst is a victim of assault. Domestic violence. But the law is infringing, so of course she's not for it. So I had to get Katie Hill in there. Two things at once. That was one tweet. She did California and that. I mean, the girl's going to run somewhere. That's what I think she's trying to do. But the positives in our liberal shit is the Virginia ban on guns, or assault weapon, was rejected. Nets ignore it completely. The only network to cover it was Fox. A huge setback tonight for gun control advocates in Virginia. A bill to ban assault weapons in the Commonwealth died in committee today because of Democrat defections in the state legislature. Correspondent Doug McElway tells us what that means tonight. I have everything that they're trying to ban out in the open. Virginia has become ground zero in the gun rights versus gun control showdown. Philip Van Cleve was one of an estimated 22,000 who showed up in Richmond last month to protest the governor's multi-pronged push to regulate guns. The governor declared war on gun owners, law-abiding gun owners, and that activated grassroots gun owners across the state in a way I've never seen before. That protest may have paid off today as four moderate Democratic senators crossed lines to join a Republican minority to defeat a proposed assault weapons ban. A spokeswoman for Governor Ralph Northam vowed the fight's not over. Quote, we will be back next year. Once purple, Virginia has turned solidly blue, with Democrats controlling the governor's mansion and both houses. While the proposed assault weapons ban may have been a bridge too far, Democrats have won a string of eight gun control victories in the House, including limiting handgun purchases to once every 30 days, requiring background checks, allowing local governments to ban firearms in public spaces, and red flag measures to block sales of firearms to those who are a danger to themselves or others. Michael Bloomberg campaigned here Saturday, praising Democrats for sending a strong gun control message in this national election year. It's only been a month since they took office, 
and already you've taken action to end our epidemic of gun violence. They want to take away everyone's gun. They want to destroy the Second Amendment. Yeah, a lot of articles on that. Not going to read them, but that's pretty good. I had an abortion segment. I'm going to push it to the next podcast, and we'll close our liberal shit with The Hill. Representative Denny, Debbie Washington Schultz and American founding women were intentionally left out of the Constitution. Today we still receive less pay for the same work and receive violence and harassment just for being a woman. But the EARA will prohibit all of that. And here's her fucking soundbite. After nearly a century, the Equal Rights Amendment is on the cusp of ratification. At America's founding, women were intentionally left out of the Constitution. As second-class citizens, we lack the right to vote, hold most jobs, or even own property. Today, we still receive less pay for the same work, and we face violence and harassment just for being a woman. But the ERA will prohibit all of that. In the eyes of our most sacred document, we will finally be equal. Women's rights should not depend on congressional whims or who occupies the White House. These basic fundamental rights must be guaranteed. But if we want to hand a more perfect union over to our daughters, and I have two of them, we must seize this moment to end sex discrimination. We owe it to the women who sacrificed before us and all of our daughters and sons who deserve a life of true equality. So I urge my colleagues to vote yes on this resolution to remove the arbitrary and outdated deadline for ratifying the ERA. I yield back. Only Democrats would keep that person around. Caught jury rigging a fucking election was fired from her job, and she gets up to speak. So here are women's reply to her. No, we weren't left out of the Constitution. No, we didn't receive less pay for work. No, the ERA wouldn't prohibit violence and harassment. It's already illegal, but there are consequences to the ERA. From the Daily Single, perhaps one of the clearest results of the ERA would be that it would almost be impossible to exclude women from the draft. An 18-year-old woman would have to sign up for the selective service. Given the legal push to open up all combat roles for women, this would have potentially profound societal and individual consequences. Mm-hmm. Because that's how they're not in the draft. Samurka, a woman. Dear Debbie, you have never done the same work with the same experience, ex- expertise, and output for less pay. Sadly, all of humanity is at times subjected to violence and harassment. False accusation against men fall in the latter category. Um, you are a successful woman with a platform and a powerful voice. Be honest about what being a U.S. woman in the early 2020s has to afford you. Truly, equity doesn't require special treatment. Yeah, and she's right. So, no, no, Debbie Wasserman. No, no, you're wrong. It doesn't do it. So, we're going to go out to our lighter fare. I said I didn't have it, but I was going to play it as the last lighter, our liberal shit. This is a real thing in Seattle. It was done in their house. Um, this is the tree murder song. Yeah, that's a thing. There's an unwelcome sight in the neighborhood. A developer is being greedy. There's a hole in the sky where a tree once stood. Such a lack of life and sound. All that's left is bare, muddy ground. A magnificent tree was murdered. The mighty dollar cut it down. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. Stand up. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. 
Laws protect exceptional trees, but the city grants exemptions to these. Instead, they reward the developer's greed and sanction the murderer's deeds. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. No more leaves shimmering with golden light. No more gentle shedding of rains. Nor tulip blossoms rustling in the wind. Now nothing remains but that hole in the side where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. There's a hole in the sky where the tree once was. Somebody's making money. There's a hole in the sky, in the sky, instead of a spreading canopy. There's a hole in the sky, in the sky, instead of a 90-year-old tree. There's a hole in the sky, in the sky, that tree did not belong to you or me. There's a hole in the sky, where the tree should be. Pass the tree ordinance now. Stop. Sweet God. What the fuck is wrong with people? So that wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Fop podcast gmail.com get the show on soundcloud podcast attic tune in radio google play itunes blueberry stitcher and pocket cast please check out the facebook page at fop podcast and the twitter page at fop tony reed we're going to take a little break our next podcast will not be until 26 i say again 26 february year of our lord 2020 got a few things to attend to got a doctor's appointment usually come back and do a podcast on crack day, but by the time I get done, because it's a later appointment, I won't be able to do a podcast. So we'll do it next Wednesday morning. Um, hope it's an AB section because we've got enough in material. This was kind of a lame podcast and not a lot of material, but it kind of got enough to make a show. Please make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah, yeah. Spend time with your family. Stay warm if you're in the south or the north. It's kind of cold down here. I had a fire going the whole damn time. Enjoy life, my friends. Because as the ending said, it's a short ride, then it's over. Thanks all of you for listening. Listening's up, and I love it. Stats look fantastic. We'll cover it March 1st. And as always, you take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at Fop Podcast. And Twitter account at Fop Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count. I'm the sun and the air. On the shyness that is criminally broken. I'm the sun and air. But nothing really in particular.